0: Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley and of course this is The Unexpected Cosmology. This is my third presentation that I have given on Miriam of Migdal. And of course when I gave the first one about six or seven months ago now I was so nervous about it I didn't even want to present it to the group and I contacted Josh privately. I'm like hey can we do a Can we do a private recording on this, just on a night of the week that nobody else is listening in? Uh, A couple of my mods or admins did listen in. I think Rebecca and Katie were there uh, listening in at that time, maybe Pamela as well. And um, I thought that was kind of all the material I had. I'm like, well, you know, this is what I've looked into. This is what I have. And like any kind of investigation, when you start... Uh, kind of moving the pieces around and stuff and the picture starts forming all of a sudden you start it starts unraveling you start seeing more and more and more i gave a second presentation about a couple months ago this is my third that i'm giving and it's going to be a good good chunk of material tonight anyways we are starting on page 67 and as i was telling the group before i started i'm so glad that this is 67 and not the other big number and i'm always trying so hard not to show like you know to flash like occult gang signs to show my like street cred or whatever i'm um, always trying hard not to so starting on page 67 and this is called the woman and the alabaster jar revisited now if you are listening to this live in the group tonight and you did not listen to any of the others apologies hopefully you're not going to be uh left behind for the rest of you if you are listening to this on the podcast or youtube land or wherever you have the advantage to go back and track down the other two presentations i gave which particularly the first one it, if you're coming into this and don't really, you're not going to know what i'm talking about but it is what it is so let's get right to it page uh, 67 the woman in the alabaster jar revisited i slipped up it happens in an, inve- in an investigation such as this one. You will recall that I spent so much time at the dinner party of Simon the jar maker attempting to identify Miriam of Migdal as the woman with the alabaster jar that I didn't even think to interview the host, Simon. He was her father. How did I possibly miss that one? And here I th- thought the puzzle was complete or as complete as it would ever be, but No. The Merriam story arch takes on an entirely new perspective when that little nugget of information is known. Do you recall how the the dinner party takes place immediately following Eleazar's vacancy from the tomb when he's resurrected? I had speculated earlier that Simon invited Eleazar over because he wanted to see what a resurrected person looked like in person. Perhaps ask him a few questions about the afterlife, who knows? It didn't even cross my mind that the party was thrown as a gift of gratitude to the man who brought his son back to life. Why do I come to that conclusion? Because Lucas mentions a Parashim, uh, Matthew or Matsif Yahu, and Marcus identify him as Simon, whereas Yocanon slash John is the one who mentions Eliezer by name. All four Gospels assume one lodging at Bethany. Simon and Eliezer lived in the same household and guess who wasn't invited to the party the woman with the alabaster jar revisiting the lucas account this is what we read now when the uh parishe or parashay the the uh, the pharisee which had bidden him saw it he spoke within himself saying this man if he were a prophet would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him for she is a sinner that comes from Luke uh, 7, 36-39. or oh, just, I guess, verse 39. Little typo there. Mary of Migdal was not welcome at the party because Simon the Pharisee had deemed it so. An outcast from her own family, she was probably lingering around outside with the dogs. Remember when Yahusha arrived at Eleazar's wailing procession? Ask yourself why Martha was among the mourners whereas her sister wasn't. No, Miriam was off on her own and already dead to some of them. It's why Simon the the Pharisee was off mumbling to himself, somewhat hysterical, that Yahusha would put two and two together if he were truly a prophet. Well, I'm not a prophet and rather slow at these things. I have already covered the sexual connotations of the hair-washing episode, but then there's the other facet to the story. Miriam's lack of head covering was a telltale sign that she had no husband or protector. Except for Yehusha, that is. Of course, that's my opinion. Immediately, I will be told that Yehusha would be breaking Torah and taking Miriam to wife if her father was against the idea. But I disagree. He had already turned his daughter out. In doing so, he had forsaken any authority on what vows she might make before Yehua. Torah does have something to say about that, and I'm about to show you. So this would come from uh, Numbers 31 through 16. It's almost the whole chapter. I'm just going to read it here. And Moshe spoke unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Yasharil, saying, This is the thing which Yahuwah has commanded. If a man vows a vow unto Yahuwah or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to uh, all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman also vows a vow unto Yahuwah and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, you can see I put that in red there, that's important, and her father hears her vow and her bond wherewith she has bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she has bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallows her in the day that he hears, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she has bound her soul shall stand, and Yahuwah shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. And if it, and if she had at all a man when she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips wherewith she bound her soul, and her man heard it and held his peace at her in the day that he heard it, then her vow shall stand and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if a man disallowed her on the day that he heard it, then he shall make her vow which she vowed, and that which she uttered with her lips, wherewith she bound her soul of no effect, and Yahuwah shall forgive her. Now here's another part I deemed important right here in verse 9. But every vow of a widow and of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her man's house, or bound her soul by a bond with an oath, and her man heard it, and held his peace at her, and disallowed her not, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if her man has utterly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatsoever proceeded out of her lips concerning her vows, or concerning the bond of her soul, shall not stand. Her man has made them void, and Yahuwah shall forgive her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul, her man may establish it or her man may make it void. But if her man altogether hold his peace at her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her bonds which are upon her. I know this is really wordy, but it's like yeah, who is trying to like, you know, check off all the, you know, all the possible things, the scenarios that may come up just to make sure everything is covered. Uh, then he established Establishes all her vows or all her bonds which are upon her, he confirms them because he held his peace at her in the day that he heard them. But if he shall ways make them void after that he has heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. Here is another parade deemed important. These are the statutes which Yahuwah commanded Moshe between a man and his woman, between the father and his daughter, being yet in her youth in her father's house. Again, that comes from Numbers 31 through 16. The relationship between a, a woman and her father and his role in either canceling out or accepting the vows his daughter has made with Yahuwah are given in great detail in Numbers chapter 30. Assuming she has the hots for another boy and her father hears about it and puts his foot down, the Torah offers them no rights in pursuing that relationship any further. That is, if her father says anything. If she makes a vow and he holds his peace, saying nothing against the arrangements, he is not allowed to take it back at a later hour. She is in her full rights to move forward. It says in her youth. The general idea is that she would remain under the care and protection of her father until it was agreed upon that another man would take her in as his wife. But then notice something else. A father only has a say in his daughter's vows so long as she remains under his roof. If he has turned her out or is no longer financially providing for her, then he has lost all say on the matter. It furthermore specifies the rights of a widow or a divorced woman. They, too, can vow without their father's intervention, seeing as how he has already released them at an early hour. The the idea is, is that once the father releases his daughter, he can't take her. He can't force his hand to take her back again. I mean, maybe she'd be like, hey, can you take me under your roof again? And, you know, whatever. But once he has turned her out, handed her out to another man or whatever, he cannot then go uh, speak against her vows. And so, revisiting Simon's reaction once again, we read, Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spoke with himself, saying, This man... If he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Simon grumbled amongst himself in questioning Yahusha's character. Because if you stop to think about it, Yahusha accepting her put his moral judgment into question. He did not not protest, however, because the Torah had no longer given him the authority to do so. Miriam was pressed to make her own decision now. The reason why seems obvious enough. Either Simon had already released Miriam to another man, and she was a widow or divorced, or there, is more like, uh, or there is the more likely option. That she had made a vow, her father did not allow for it, and she went ahead with it anyways, resulting in her being turned out and disowned. Hold on, I just thought of something simon was referred to as a jar maker in mark 14 3. yes a jar maker are you connecting the pieces now Miriam offered Yehusha the nard from her alabaster jar the scripture writers are offering various clues but i haven't been slow but i have been slow in taking the bait for for all i know simon had given his two daughters a jar as an offering to their future husband and Miriam kept hers, despite being turned out. Simon knew exactly what was happening when she brought that thing into the room and cracked it open. And now for the reason why I wanted to revisit the woman with the alabaster jar. I have stumbled upon another book during the course of my investigation into everything biblical, which not only identifies Miriam of Migdol as the woman with the alabaster jar, but gives clarifying detail as to why she landed in her predicament. It comes from... The Book of the Nazarene, which we'll be reading more afterwards, and a lot of you have really been excited about recently, and reads as follows. So this comes from chapter 19. When Yehusha spent the days in Yerushalayim, the nights were spent on the slopes of Mount Olive, and the disciples built shelters close to a place where there was an oil press. I really like that little detail there. That it says the disciples built shelters. Um, I don't think we read that anywhere else. However, one day at eventide, Yahusha went to the house of Simon the Pure, where some women who were followers of his were living. Though the disciples were given food, little was said to them, for they being strangers, the people in the house were suspicious, and Simon lay on a cushion across from Yahusha. Pause. Of course, there's more to this. We find ourselves in the house of Simon again, though he is dead given the name Simon the Pure rather than Simon the Leper this time around, telling us that he has been restored to good standing within the religious community. The same could be said regarding his once dead son, I suppose. Not his daughter, though. The text informs us that he had daughters, plural, though if we're being technical, it says there were women who were followers of Yahusha and living with him, which is the same thing. Or it might be something different, but I think it's the same thing. One of those daughters was left outside. Have you ever visited Yashiril during the lunar month of Nisan? There are some warm days, but overall it is crisp and the nights can get cold. Continuing. After they had eaten and were talking together, a woman came from a house nearby. She was veiled and carried an alabaster jar. Now this was Miriam of Migdol, whose father had been a merchant, but he disowned her for she had lived with a centurion serving in the army of Rome. When he returned to his lawful wife, Miriam had kept herself by singing in the taverns of Galilee. Pause again. That is crazy. Long have we sought Miriam's predicament. It was sitting around waiting to be told to us in a book which practically nobody in the modern world has heard about until now. And so, what have we so far learned? First of all, the woman with the alabaster jar was Mary Mavmigdal. There is no longer a question about that fact now. Her father is described as a merchant. I am willing to bet he was a jar maker and that he was sitting on the cushion across from Yehusha when she entered. He is also referred to as Simon the jar merchant, you know. And as you can see, he disowned her. The reason being is that she played house with the centurion serving in the army of Rome without his vocal or written permission. She obviously didn't plan that one out. Love will do that to a person. Seems as though his tour of duty came to an end and he returned home to the real wife, leaving her behind. Seeing as how Miriam's father wouldn't take her back, she had little choice but to pass around the tip jar in the taverns of Galilee. That answers my other question, by the way how the sister of Eliezer and and Martha could reside in Magdala. We still don't know, because I I went through that the last presentation, where how is it if if Miriam is the same, um, or Miriam Migdal is the same Mary who is the sister of Martha? Because, you know, there's Martha and Mary, and then there's Mary Migdal, Right. Well, if she is Martha's sister, then how is she living in Migdal and not in Bethany? Well, there's your answer right there. Now, we still don't know how she ended up there, but it's not too difficult to imagine her reasonings. You figure the money was decent for a tavern singer among all those rowdy fishermen. The passage before us claims Miriam was staying at another house nearby. Some will tell me that proves she wasn't Simon's daughter, though the reasoning why she was staying in a separate location is as easy as uh, an explanation as any. Read verse 1 again. The disciples had built shelters close to a place where there was an oil press. I'm guessing they put the women up in lodging, particularly if they were betrothed or unmarried the problem this time around is that simon wouldn't have her and her father whoever her father was obviously wouldn't and so she was pressed to find other accommodations most likely the other miriams uh, related to Yehusha joined her that would be uh miriam salome uh Yahusha's aunt as well as his mother miriam and uh, just to point out here even if simon the jar maker isn't her father It's clear that uh, Eliezer and Martha lived at Bethany, which means that uh, their father would have lived at Bethany, the same father who turned her out. So uh, Simon, the jar maker, is either her father or is probably very close friends with her father. And they're both jar maker merchants, mind you. Continuing. The woman unsealed the jar and poured a sweet scented oil over the head of Yahusha, seeing which uh, which some of those present were indignant saying what a waste when this could have been sold for a lot of money which would have benefited the poor we've seen that in all the different gospels Yehusha said leave her alone there is little point of being angry with her when all she has done is to honor me you can help the poor whenever you like but i will not be here much longer turning to miriam of migdal he said why do you pay me this honor for the cost to you must have been great and then said <laughs> <laughs> I love this in verse seven, uh, 7. Someone said, the price was easily obtained. Pause. Much of what we have just read should be familiar by this point. There are a couple of unique flourishes worth commenting upon, though. Yahusha asks Miriam why she paid him this great honor, thereby setting up the marriage conversation to follow. It's all a setup. Somebody then interrupts her with a rather snide remark indicating that the price of her fragrance was easily obtained, as if that's not awkward. What is that suggest- was suggesting of her? Who said that exactly? Her father? We are not told. It would certainly fit other descriptions of him in that he was putting Yahusha's quality as a prophet into question. Basically, who was murmuring? It was Simon the jar maker. So I'm kind of suggesting that he may have been the one that said the price was easily obtained. But then something I had neglected to mention was the fact that she had already veiled herself in verse 3, and no other variation are we given that information. I have no idea whether or not a Galilee lounge singer would cover her face when stepping up to the bar stool and stage, but she clearly was amending her ways now, being veiled as an act of modesty and greatly contrasts the easily obtained quip which was likely intended to cheapen whatever was going on between her and Yahusha. It's as if the speaker is attempting to convince everyone that she broke open the nard and offered her hair to any other number of men. See what I mean? Continuing. Miriam said to Yahusha, Sire, I am she whom you saw in Peneus. For when women reviled me, I came to you and said, Forgive my sins. When you asked wherein I had sinned, I said, by loving while unwed. Thereupon you said, that of itself is no wrongdoing and demonstrates greater love than that of many who say, the price of my love is marriage. You said I gave the greatest form of love any woman can give. For being virgin, I went to my love without the security of marriage, seeing in no way to bind the man. Or seeking in no way to bind the man, excuse me. Yahushua said... With this man you did no wrong, and though your love was unblessed in the eyes of men, providing you loved truly, it was pure and sanctified in the sight of Elohim. The man, however, is not without sin in this manner and will surely be called to a proper accounting. And though since leaving him you have done wrong, he bears his portion of the guilt. You chose freely not to be a woman reserved for marriage, a choice you could rightly make. Only should you now seek marriage, saying, though I love you too, now I have my price, would you be doing wrong, this being committed against Elohim, love, and your husband. Hmm, I wonder what's being said here. Nazareth, we've got a problem. Miriam claims she was told by Mashiach on an earlier occasion that she had committed no sin in handing her virginity over, or well, we assume virginity, over to a man outside of wedlock. Yehusha then responds that she's right, that she had done no wrong, huh? That c- can't be. We have already read the part about her father turning her out. There is no way he consented to his daughter bedding with the Roman centurion outside of wedlock. That right, that right there is a breaking of Torah. The only situation where I can see this working is in his demanding the bride price be paid, soon as he found out about their sexual relationship and so this comes from exodus twenty-two sixteen. and if a man entices a maid that she is not betrothed and lie with her he shall surely endow her to be his woman if her father utterly refuses to give her unto him he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins is this what happened Miriam may have given her heart to a man with the expectation that she become his woman. We're dealing with a case of lust and hormones and two consenting adults entangled within the world of polygamy rather than prostitution. Her father would have then demanded a bride price if he refused to hand her over to. Uh, let me say that again. If he refused to hand her over to Loverboy, he could still demand payment according to the dowry of virgins. Not that a cocky Roman centurion need oblige the Torah, according to his thinking. It seems to me that a payment of some sort was offered. I base this upon Yahusha's evaluation. He said there was no wrong committed initially. Yes, there was a transgression, but that had to do with the centurion ditching his woman rather than, than his taking her in. The Roman centurion you know, ditched Miriam the middle. He would be held accountable for his reck- recklessness. But now what about Miriam? She had already been turned out by two men, uh, her father and now this Roman centurion. What is a little lonesome girl to do in a man's world? According to Yahusha, she had committed further wrongs in the years between the Roman centurion and him. Sounds like there may have been other men in the equation. Difficult to tell, though. Now, going into this, I probably should have told you the text has its problems. The Book of the Nazarene, it's not a perfect text. Everybody I have so far spoken with has agreed that this passage, what we just read, and this one alone, though none other found in the whole of the book, contradicts what we find in the Torah. I am not so certain of that, though. I may be wrong and am most willing to be. At the very least, the case has been attempted on my part. Clarification, if you will. The Torah doesn't explicitly outlaw sex before marriage. Some will totally disagree with me on that. But that doesn't mean it approves of it either. Nor is Yehusha attributing this sort of behavior to a holy lifestyle. Uh, what I'm, well, let me clarify this. The, my understanding of sex in the Torah, I guess I should have put a little um, uh, uh, parental warning out here. This is, you know, uh, big, uh, big boy and big girl talk tonight. Uh, sex in the Torah is, 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 is a holy act. I mean, my reading of it, I, I come to that conclusion. Um, it, it's, it's not explicitly outlawed outside of marriage, but it is not, it is not the behavior of a righteous person, if that makes any sense. Uh, if you want to be a righteous person, a, uh, living a holy lifestyle, you keep within the parameters of, of marriage feel free to or feel free oh yeah let me, let me just add too that um if you read the the translation that that's adam think parable of the vineyard put out which is the one i'm quoting from he actually puts right under this very conversation between miriam of miguel and yahushua mashiach he puts under his notes that he says this is the one passage he believes uh was added to at a later time that it's not original to the text um which that may be, I'm of the mind that it probably is original. Um, and I, I think that uh, if you, you know, sometimes we read something we don't like to hear and we just like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm not going to wrestle with that. I'm just going to toss that out. But it, it may not be saying exactly what we think it's saying, or perhaps maybe our understanding of the Torah is a little bit off, and Yahusha's clarifying it, just to put that out there. All right. Feel free to pull out the, the magnum and drill bullets into my rectification process. It just seems to me that we need to demand the text has been tampered with whenever something comes along that challenges our thinking. Uh, that wasn't, by the way, that wasn't a stab at anybody else. Um, if anybody, you know, it's up to each person to evaluate these texts and and see if it's been tampered with or not. Assuming the objectors are correct, and the scribes have had their way with this one, is it intended Or is it indeed not ironic, then, that Miriam of Megdal alone receives this sort of treatment? Something to think about. Again, though, I am holding out that what we are given is legitimate, though wildly misunderstood, and can be further expounded upon in other areas. I intend to do just that when dipping into the, the Gnostic text, which I'll be talking about tonight. Oh yes, we're going there. Eventually. Or rather sooner rather than later continuing we're back in the book of the nazarene chapter 19 miriam said sire i have been a sinner but have not sinned this last year hmm. nor shall i again should i love once more i will not now claim the rights of marriage which i which i once repudiated before commenting upon miriam's response i feel like we need to Back to Trolley up one verse prior, so as to review Yahusha's side of the conversation, particularly the statement, "Only should you now seek marriage, saying though I love you too, now I have my price.'" And the 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 key there is now I have my price. Would you be doing wrong? This being committed against Elohim, love, and your husband, Mashiach isn't saying marriage is no longer permissible for her. Read it carefully. Miriam is hoping to rectify her past situation. Yahusha is therefore clarifying that she has forsaken the bride price. To demand one is to commit wrong against her husband. Say that again her husband. She is seeking out a husband. Which husband are we talking about? It can't be the Roman centurion or any of the other potential bachelors. Because she's never been married before. The husband she speaks of is the one whom she hopes to marry. Why are they even having this conversation? Miriam's sister is there. Her brother, Eliezer, is most certainly accounted for, though Miriam might be off doing the dishes, you never know. Her father is probably gasping for breath or clutching his heart on the other side of the table. The ever-busy Martha might, (laughs) I just said this, I'm always ahead of myself, the ever-busy Martha might even be holding out a paper bag so that he can hyperventilate into it. Actually, that line's a lot better than what I came up with before. The entire scenario is going down in the very four walls and roof, which she was no longer welcome under. I might as well snap a picture and then frame it for you. Miriam of Migdal has cracked open the bottle of Nard. She then anointed Yahusha's feet with her hair in front, of the entra- in front of his entourage and her family, mind you. And now they're having the love and marriage announcement for all to hear. Why are you still fighting this? Is it really so difficult to fathom that Yahusha would take a woman? Getting back to Miriam's response, verse 10. Instead of making you flip back through the paper, I'll write it out for you again. Miriam said, uh, starting at verse 10, we'll be reading through 11 again. Sire, I have been a sinner, but have not sinned this last year. Nor shall I again. Should I love once more? I will not now claim the rights of marriage which I once repudiated. Yahushua said, love is a blending of ruakoth and not a union of flesh. Woe to those whose love compounds discord in the place where love is fulfilled. If these things confound you, read the Books of Wisdom. Book of the Nazarene, chapter 19, 10 through 11. She confesses to having sinned with the Roman centurion and potentially with any number of others, but it hasn't happened at any time during the last year. Mm Mm-hmm. Year. The length of betrothal between a bride and her groomsmen. Are you reading this? She has reserved her heart for Yahusha and has arrived to make that fact known. Another thing she has done is to clear her name. The entire adultery episode in the street was perpetrated by the temple crew, and she's off the hook. And then look at what follows. Miriam states, Should I love once more, I will not now claim the rights of marriage which I repudiated. Marriage vows. That's what we're dealing with here. She's not talking about a marriage merely designed of the flesh either. Some may be confused on that point. The other. Men, uh, the other men were that to her fornication of the flesh lots of people have those no she's talking about a marriage of the ruach two ruachoth becoming one that much is evident in Yehusha's response love is a blending of ruachoth and not a union of flesh those are his words not mine i suspect they are also included in his marriage vows all right, the next section, the woman at the well and the marriage of Ruikov. So I'll be going into a deeper uh, explanation, hopefully, on the marriage of Ruikov, if anyone has any uh, questions on what that looks like. I, I think this is beautiful. I love this. This is really exciting. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and I, and because we've had that question for years, like, what happens when we die? Are we we're just done we're like we're going to be in in heaven be like yeah i I used to know you at one time and you know you kind of say hi to them as you you know cross the street you know every decade or so whatever um but but not so according to this book so really i would not be in the least bit surprised if the woman at the will and miriam of middle did end up being the same person nor would i be the first to make such claim alas they are not despite the frequent double take so i am not Saying the woman at the will is Mary Magdalene, I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised if they were. Though their stories were intended to complement each other, and I intend to show it. First and foremost, the woman at the will was obviously left unaware, descended from the northern tribes of Yashiro rather than the Yahudim. We are often told the Yahudim hated them so because they had interbred with the Persians during their dispersion hundreds of years earlier. But the truth of the matter is that they considered the Yerushalayim Temple as well as the Levitical priesthood illegitimate, and you know that wouldn't go over well. The woman at the well was later baptized by the apostles and given the name Fatine of Samaria, according to her Eastern biography. This is the official narrative, uh, which means the uh, the Fatine uh, or Fatine. It means the enlightened one of Samaria. Sometime in the early to mid 60s, the matriarch is said to have moved her family to Carthage. That's in Africa, only to die a martyr during Emperor Nero's worldwide shakedown in this, in 66 AD. So again, I would probably be getting my wires crossed if I identified them as the same person. But you never really know. You may be wondering why I'm making a deal about Yahusha meeting the Samaritan woman at the well to begin with because he met her at a well of all places. Are you even faintly familiar with how many Hebrew men meet their, met their Shebrew women at a watering well? The list is too long to copy down and comment upon for this intended exercise, though I will list off uh, some of them off for you. Eliezer sought a wife for Yitzhak and found Rivka at a well in Haran, Beersheath 24. Abraham met Keturah at the well of Sheba, Beersheath 25. Um, I put Beersheath 25 there uh, twice. That must be a uh, Rivka effect. After the death of Sarah, um, Beersheath 25, (laughs) Rivka effect. Yaakov met Rachel at a well in Beersheath 29. Moshe met uh, Zipporah at a well in Midian in Shemoth, or Exodus 24. Ruth and Boaz have the same story as the rest of them. They too met at a well. There are probably others. It just seems as though the will was the happening place to be as it pertains to boys and girls in the Hebrew courting process. It certainly doesn't help that the conversation between Yahusha and the woman focus upon her sexual history, leading some to silently speculate that a betrothal was being discussed. I mean, it's not like the disciples were shocked at Yahusha speaking with a woman at the boulangerie or the kosher deli. Those incidents probably couldn't be avoided and were likewise never recorded because it is the watering hole which holds connotations rather than the others. Another thing I needn't do is rehearse the entire story. Unless you have been living under a rock, then you are likely familiar with their encounter. A snippet will do. The incident lands only two chapters after the patrol ceremony in Galilee, uh, between uh, the the bride and groom, who I believe is Yahusha and Mary Magdal, you can refer back to my first presentation on that, telling us that Yochanan had a certain theme in minds, though water was certainly one of them. The other was marriage. Well, here is the part where marriage and water encounter their crossroads. Uh, this is the Gospel of John, chapter four, verses fifteen through seventeen, through eighteen. 15 through 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Yahushua said unto her, Go, call your man, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no man. Yahushua said unto her, You have well said, I have no man, for you have had five men, and he whom you now have is not your man, and that said you truly. Though it is possible that she experienced widowhood on five separate occasions, the, far, the, the mere fact that she had ventured to the will by her lonesome screams the far more plausible scenario to the reader. The Samaritan woman was outright rejected by most, if not every last one of them. The sixth wouldn't even marry her, but that may be explained in the fifth, putting her away rather than handing a bill of divorce, thereby leading her down the road of an adulterous relationship. Then again, there is a possibility that she became a concubine on the last go around. Not much else is made of Yehusha's revelation other than the woman understanding him to be a prophet. It furthermore only lands in the lap of Yochanan's Besorah, canonically speaking, which is important in and of itself to the overall narrative before us. There is more to their encounter, though, depending on which gospel you read. The woman at the will shows up again in the book of the Nazarene. Follow this through to the end, and it will swing us right around to where we last left off in the Miriam of Migdal situation. So this is from the book of the Nazarene, chapter 6, which we'll probably read tonight. Maybe we'll get that, that far. The woman said to Yahusha, let me have this water you talk about, so I am freed from the necessity of drawing water. Yahusha said, it would be best if you went and brought your husband for two may understand better than one she answered but i have no husband and you said in this you have at any rate spoken true for though you married five times you now live with one who is not your husband same story different gospel a near word for word rendition as well so far you have to keep reading to see how the woman's five marriages and some change are expounded upon the woman leaves in the usual manner, telling everyone about the prophet who approached her at the well. To be fair, you have to wonder how many Samaritans thought the same thing about a betrothal. But I'm getting distracted. Read further on. The disciples then stand around asking questions. Typically, I would say it's the usual fare, except look at what one of the, those questions happens to be. The one who had remained with Yahusha said, Master, I am puzzled. This woman had many husbands. Tell us which one will be her husband in heaven. Recognize the question? Yeah, me too. Makes me think the five husbands might have brothers and she uh and she has no heir. Or and that she has or that he has Oh, my goodness. Another Rivka effect. Any <laughs> any son born through the sixth man in her life would be deemed a bastard child. So let's keep reading. Yehusha said, "In heaven there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage, for there the promises of marriage are fulfilled. To one she must incline more than towards the others. And if he inclines likewise, there is union of the ruach. But unions of the ruach may be either weak or strong." Another disciple said, "What if he who is not her husband?" Yehusha answered him, "Marriage is not of the flesh." Nor made by the words of men. It is of the Ruach. And they who are joined in Ruach and flesh in the sight of Yahuwah let no man seek to lightly put apart. A marriage wholly of the flesh is fornication, though it be blessed by many priests. Well, if that doesn't take us to a whole new level of, of wow. Well, that took an unexpected unexpected turn normally yahushua would say there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage in heaven and then drop a period into the sentence end of story not here though the woman at the well has been with six men in total and to only one of them has her heart been inclined as the union of ruach go if this is the same woman who married five brothers i'm thinking her ruach was blitted with the first one that spiritual union is the very reason why she continued on with each of the succeeding brothers, for true love and all that. She, or true, was it true love. She wanted an heir in his name rather than the others. It's a Torah thing. What Yehusha is saying, or rather what I believe he is saying is that the physical act of procreation serves its purpose in our lifetime rather than in heaven because it is pre-existing souls which need cycle through the womb of the earth. To say till death do we part in a marriage covenant is a true statement, as marriage is a binding act of the flesh. The actual union of Luakoth, however, which may often be felt during an orgasmic experience, continues on into eternity. Yes, I just went there. So long as the man and his woman are truly strong in their spiritual bond. Mashiach has more to say on the matter. Much more. Here as well as in other places. I do as well. Um, I I do as well, but the I do as well have more to say in other places. But the bulk of my follow-up will be found when talking about the kiss and the bride chamber. And we'll be talking about that next. This is a journey which cannot be rushed one thing at a time. So. uh. Continuing the book of the Nazarene, this is in chapter 16. Yehusha departed from where he was and moved over to the water in Yehuda across the Jordan or the Jordan River. And here, too, crowds gathered about him to hear his message. Many of the usual questions were asked and similar answers given. One man put this question to him. Great teacher, is it lawful, according to the great Torah, for a man to put away his wife? For there are other laws concerning this. Yehusha said... What did one of the great lawgivers, speaking with the authority of Elohim, say about this matter? The man answered, The Torah he gave permitted a severance deed to be made, and with this the wife is divorced. Yehusha said, Such laws are needful while men are without wisdom. I assure you, it will not be so when the rule of Elohim comes. This is speaking of the what we know as the thousand-year reign. They are made for those who cannot overcome differences by compassion and understanding. Where there is no feeling, there cannot be love. Divorce is is decreed for the failures in love. Wait, did Yahushua just say what I think he said? The question is over the right to divorce. Yahushua says divorce laws are necessary for men without wisdom. That's a Ruach HaKodesh reference right there, but not what I'm trying to focus upon at the moment. It's in the follow-up. Yahushua says, and I quote, I assure you, it will not be so when the rule of Elohim comes. What will, what will not be so, be so? Divorce? The rule of Elohim is a reference to the kingdom of heaven, but mostly the world to come. Notice what he neglects to say, that man and woman will not be wed. If that were so, then avoiding divorce would be an obvious choice. Nobody would need to make that decision because eternity belongs to bachelorhood. It doesn't, though. There is no divorce under the rule of Elohim because a union of ruachoth is not failed. Continuing. Since the beginning, there have been male and female, each needing the other for, for fulfillment and spiritual flowering. For this reason, a man leaves his parents and unites with a woman so that two become one in flesh and ruach. The flesh is easily parted, but with the united Ruachoth, it is different. Therefore, when two are joined together in the union of love, let no act of man sever them from each other. Fornication occurs in marriage as well as outside it, for marriage is much more than the union of flesh. And whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery in Ruach against the one who is his true wife. Should a wife divorce her husband and marry another, she too commits spiritual adultery. Marriage has a much greater significance than this depraved generation realizes, for it enters into marriage thoughtlessly and irresponsibly, and then cries, loose us from our obligations, for we have failed and cannot stand the bonds of the covenant." After this, the disciple came to Yahushua and said, Master, enlighten me. If there can be fornication in a marriage blessed by tradition and priest, do a man and woman commit greater fornication if unblessed? Yahushua said, Marriage is the blending of two Ruachoth. Fornication is the joining of flesh. This is some deep stuff. Nothing done or not done changes this. But if a man and woman be married in the sight of Yahuwah and not before a priest, let this union not be lightly put apart, for I assure you that no future marriage, blessed by priests or otherwise, will be a marriage in Ruach. It will be no more than fornication, just like Yehusha always say things that uh that turn heads. A decision was made on my part to trudge through the entire dialogue without breaking for commentary, because another disciple it seems confessed to the same conf- confusion as most of us. Uh, as to all of us, I should say, are presently experiencing. The divorce leading to adultery, which Yahusha is speaking about, is on a spiritual level. Some of you will respond with a, no duh. Is that so? He's not necessarily speaking about the physical. A physical fornicator divorcing another physical fornicator is not the same as a Ruach severing his own Ruachoth into two by way of adultery. Clearly, there are two types of marriages going on here according to Yehusha's words, not mine. A fleshly one and that of a spiritual nature. It reminds me of Paul's circumcision debate, if anyone is paying attention. I will direct you here to my Romans commentary, I went into a great deal about this. Uh, you know, like the, the idea that you can, you can be fleshly circumcised, so what? I mean, that, that is what we are commanded to do, but that doesn't speak if you... Tr- that doesn't uh, guarantee that you're spiritually circumcised, right? So it's basically the same thing here. He, he's, it's like Yahushua saying, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who uh, get married, but they never get beyond fornication. They have never blended their, their Ruach together. I mean, that's some deep stuff. Many people are outwardly circumcised, but they're still idolaters without the inner mark of Yahuwah. Earthly inquiries are often responded with a heavenly question, as we see here. How many men and women are truly united eternally in Ruakoth? Very few, it seems. My emotional critics will claim permission uh, is being granted for a man to divorce his fornicating wife in pursuit of his quote-unquote soulmate. Wrong. These personal convictions would be following the deception of one's heart. Yahusha is claiming no such thing. He's not telling people to go get divorced. He has already explained that there is adultery being committed when a ruach divorces the one who is his true wife, despite having convinced himself otherwise. And then reading on the book of the Nazarene, one of the women, Salome, uh, this would be his aunt, uh, uh, Miriam's sister, who had accompanied the disciples. I also believe she's probably John, uh, John's mother. Let me let me read this again. One of the women, Salome, who had a comp- accompanied the disciples, asked yahusha "Is it within the Torah for a man to marry and yet not lie with his wife?" yahusha answered, "It is never right to live falsely or to dishonor a pledge. Always let whatever be done accord with the intention declared." The book of the Nostrum chapter 16. Was Miriam Salome asking for herself or for a friend? LOL. Apparently, there was a woman on this earth, though we are presumably never given a name, who never could nab her incoherent husband's attention, no matter how hard she tried, despite standing in front of the television naked during the golf game. Yahusha's response is upfront and reassuring. The intention behind each yes or no is to be honored. If the husband had convinced her that he'd be working overtime to please her, then he should have been a man and followed through with it. The problem with this negligent husband is that he wasn't thinking spiritually enough. And then look at what happens immediately following Yahusha's answer. Miriam Salome goes from a sex question to a kingdom inquiry. It's the perfect setup. Salome said, Master, when will the rule of Elohim come? Yahushua replied, When women place greater value on the treasures they hold, for men will strive harder for gold than for brass. When man and woman cease to pander to the flesh and become truly one in Ruach. For of this I assure you, unless man and woman exalt the Ruach above the flesh, they will not know life and glory. And I, I I wish I had actually quoted the passage from the Gospel of Thomas here because he's Yehusha he is saying the same thing um, about uh, about becoming a, a true person. A, a true person is the 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 ruach, the the state of the ruach, and not the flesh, the the inner self. You know, the kingdom is within, right? Even if Miriam Salome's mind has wandered completely away from the intimacy issue, and I'm thinking so, Yahusha hasn't. As I was saying, the perfect setup. Salome asks when the rule of Elohim will come about, and Yahusha uses the negligent husband to explain its absence. Sex was an issue for him, or rather the lack of intimacy, but only because the unspoken couple were not united in Ruachot likewise the woman who places greater value on the treasure she holds is speaking to the refinement of her ruach that is the goal that a man should strive for the woman's ruach whenever possible so long as he is not neglecting his own and vice versa there are other examples so basically here is you know it you guys get it i mean the difference between a spirit and flesh And I I really think that the the circumcision debate is is perfect in this. There are other examples in the Book of of the Nazarene, and in fact, it seems to be an overlaying theme to it. The heavenly union of Ruachoth, which is why all of this leads us right back to Miriam of Megdol again. When last left off, she was anointing Mashiach with her hair and speaking of marriage. Do you remember what he said to her? Yahushua said, love is a blending of ruakoff and not a union of flesh try not to act surprised when i tell you that Yehusha hamashiach showed by example how it was done all right the next section is uh we're on page 88 if you need caught up the kiss the bride chamber and miriam Migdal.
1: miriam the Migdal, the tower
0: Romantic relationships complicate the workplace. And, far as I can tell, the Talmudin weren't always thrilled with the arrangement. I had at some point earlier mentioned that Yahusha and Miriam held conversations together. Private ones. Yahusha's desire to speak alone with Miriam and Miriam only, before his sending back to the Father, is the perfect example of what appears to be an ongoing trend. There were no other witnesses, there were no other witnesses to their garden meeting the only reason we know about it is because miriam went and told the talmudim and just as a quick uh, reminder if you didn't happen to or you just you, your memory refresh if you didn't happen to read or listen to the original presentation is that the first person he appeared to when he was resurrected was miriam alone in the garden together they had an intimate moment together Still, only Yohanan thought to include their intimate meeting in his gospel, which goes with his theme. The reason why, as I've already shown, seems to continue a developing theme within his narrative flow. It is extra-canonical scripture, however, which informs us that the other Talmudim might have been annoyed by this sort of behavior. And yes, we're going there, to the Gnostic Gospels. You knew we would eventually get to them, though, didn't you? I mean... The Gnostics were all over Mary Magdal, like poo-paws in the honey jar, and I could only hold them off for so long. And anyways, I often see what others say about me on the Internet. One supposed reader of my work was going around claiming I was really a secret Gnostic, and that what I needed to do is come clean about it. Actually, that was his Facebook uh, status update that Noel Joshua Halley is a Gnostic, and he found me out. Uh, Be forthright and expose myself to humanity. As a Gnostic, that is. A secret one at that. Oh dear! He found me out. I have a hidden gnosis, and I'm not sharing it with my reading audience. Ridiculous! I literally sit here day after day, fleshing out these papers, telling you everything that I know as I learn it, including what I happen to know or not know about the Gnostics. And there's a lot of things I don't know about them. This uh, this is the sort of stuff I have to put up with. Since we're on the subject. How many people have, been attempt, uh, have even attempted to understand the Gnostics of old? I'm willing to bet Gnosticism held hands with Hebrew mysticism at the time, and Yahusha was clearly a mystic. Perhaps, or presently, I keep a replenished supply of red flags in my pockets with the full intent of planting them in the bums of our Roman controllers whenever and wherever they crop up. Just look at how they villainized the Gnostics. What we know about them comes almost entirely from the very public writings of our controllers. The Roman Catholic Church was at war with them, as well as the, the Torah of Yahuwah, telling us this stench of propaganda is to be found in the rising smoke. I would much prefer changing those soggy diapers and start out afresh, rather than take a whiff of their offerings and go, ah, refreshing. No, thank you. The fact that they've been scrubbed from his story will require every last flag in your pockets. I should probably start selling them on my website for a nickel apiece, piece, and then I'd be fully capable of sustaining my ministry. Now, I should point out that um, when we're dealing with the Gnostics, what we do is we like categorize them into this one knotty kind of position. When, frankly, the Gnostics had anyone who was classified a Gnostic, you know, they were they were. If you were classified Gnostic, you were on the outside of the, the Roman church. You were you were thrown out. You were a heretic. There were probably uh so many different views. Like we you know, I I've made the mistake in the past of saying, well, they were you know, they all believed Yahuwah was the Demiurge, and you know all this kind of stuff. And that yeah, some did. There's some out there who taught that, undoubtedly, and those are the ones they put in the limelight, you know, to, to scare you off from some of these books. But these books aren't saying that. Um Anyways, not so long ago in this discussion, I ended up by quoting the part about the Lady Church that was in my second presentation, whom I heavily insinuated was Miriam Migdal, that she was coming out of the Bride Chamber. I'm inclined to suppose the only reason copies of The Shepherd of Hermes survived is because the writer didn't go right out and connect the dots as I have, or perhaps he was simply being faithful to his visions and didn't know. I think that's probably true with a lot of scripture. They, they just wrote what they were told to write. They didn't really know what it all meant. Either way, heads would have turned far more than what an owl is capable of. And the lady, had the lady been identified? Well, it's another connection which I aim to make between Yahusha and Miriam. The bride chamber. There are even other character traits between the lady and Miriam that I have found, in which I hope to point out sometime, one thing at a time, though. And saying that no copies of the Shepherd of Hermes would have likely survived, had a connection between the two women been made, I meant it. The only reason we have the Gospel of Miriam, which is highly uh, considered to be a Gnostic text, is because it was dug up in the desert. And even then, pages of that book were scrubbed or torn out. The first six pages of the Coptic papyrus have been conveniently, quote-unquote, lost to the sands of time. Wink, wink. I, I didn't call part two of this paper that I'm reading from right now the Forbidden Mariam for nothing. What's funny is that part one is also called the Forbidden Mariam. When we are finally granted permission to enter the unraveling narrative, several pages into it, now the context here is the Gospel of Mariam, and this is what we read. Kepha said to Mariam Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than other women. Tell us the words of the Savior which you have in mind since you know them, and we do not, nor have we heard of them. Now, keep in mind she's had many intimate moments alone with him. Miriam answered and said, What is hidden from you I will impart, impart to you. And she began to say the following words to them. I, she said, I saw Adonai in a vision, and I said to him, Adonai... I saw you today in a vision. The Gospel of Miriam. Oh no, did I read that right? Miriam had hidden knowledge. Yahusha told her things privately. Like a naughty... (laughs) I I messed that up. Like a naughty Gnostic. Not good. One can only wonder what the details are. Shame on them for not sharing their intimate conversations with us. Every juicy detail. Wouldn't you like to know some of it? Good thing Miriam proceeded to tell Kifa and the other Talmudim all that Yahusha showed her in the most recent vision so that we wouldn't be kept guessing. But then something happens. More pages are torn out. No, I'm not kidding. I wish I could relay to you all that Miriam had to offer to the group. But alas, when the narrative picks back up again, the woman whom Yahusha loved has finished her speech. She's sitting back down again. How very convenient. It's almost like somebody didn't want us listening in. But who am I to make such conclusions? Anywho, here is where we pick up again. When Miriam had said this, she was silent since the Savior had spoken thus far with her. But Andre, who is Andrew, answered and said to the brethren, Say what you think concerning what she said, for I do not believe that the Savior said this for certainly these teachings are of other ideas. kepha also opposed her in... It's almost like the context here, the way it's ripped out, it's like, ooh, whatever he said or whatever she said must have been really bad. kepha also opposed her in regard to these matters and asked them about the Savior, did he then speak secretly with a woman in preference to us and not openly? Are we to turn back and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? Then Miriam grieved and said to kepha My brother Kepha, what do you think? Do you think that I thought this up myself in my heart or that I am lying concerning the Savior? Uh, Levi answered and said to Kepha, Kepha, you are always irate. Now I see that you are contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you to reject her? Surely the Savior knew her very well. For this reason, he loved her more than us. The Gospel of Miriam. As you can plainly see, whatever Miriam had to say didn't go over well, mostly. Andre, the brother of Kifo, was the first to speak up, and this is what we learned. He wasn't buying it. Kifo wasn't exactly a fan of her exclus- uh, exclusivity either. Whoever took the, the magic eraser to her words apparently didn't want us making any other judgment call either. Come to think of it, her missing words are probably far more controversial than anything she might have said. If they were truly the words of a false prophet and Miriam commanded that we break Torah or even insinuate that it was done away with, then you'd think uh, Marcion and the boys down at seminary as well as the local lodge would be all over that one. She doesn't, though, and here's why. This also comes from the Gospel of Miriam. Now, I don't put uh, chapters or verse numbers in this because there are none. Go then and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Do not lay down any rules beyond what I appointed you. And do not give a law like the lawgiver, lest you be constrained by it. That's Yahushua speaking, by the way. Uh, He is commanding his Talmudim to go out and about, preparing for the coming kingdom, and reminding them once again how it is to be done. By not laying down any rules beyond what he has already appointed them, and we know what he has told them to do, We know what the boundary line is, and it doesn't extend beyond the Torah. The quip about not giving a law like the lawgiver, lest they be constrained by it, would therefore only be indirectly referencing Moshe. It is the Perishim, the Pharisees, who gave a contrary law like the lawgiver, the Talmud, and they were constrained by it. You see how that works? Good advice if I do say so myself. Keep with Yahuwah's instructions in righteousness. The 613 are enough to keep us all occupied. We are given a clue as to Miriam's gnosis. It is delivered in Levi's response, wherein we first and foremost learn that the Savior made her worthy. What exactly are the qualifying factors of making one woman worthy, above even the men of his entourage, or any other woman for that matter? Well, Levi tells us. Surely, he says, the Savior knew her very well. How well? He loved her more than us. Just so all my bros know, I love my wife more than you. Implicit in that exclusivity is his pulling her aside from the others so that he might speak on intimate matters. Kind of sounds like the relationship between my wife and I again when taking my bros into account. But what it, what do I know about marital relationships, really? What does anybody know? Also, Yehusha kissed Miriam on the mouth. I'm trying to get back to my original point, which is romance in the workplace. That's what we read about in the Gnostic Gospels. So this one comes from the Gospel of Philip, which, by the way, um, I. I think that uh, very likely the the writer of the Gospel of Philip, I really think it should be called the Epistle of Philip because it's not really a gospel, it's more like a letter. Uh, but I think whoever the writer is of the Gospel of Philip, if it is Philip, uh, is the same writer perhaps of the Book of the Nazarene it's It's almost like if you can take the Gospel of John and then slide first John right up to it, and they just they they fit perfectly like First john is this great uh afterthought commentary on the gospel well the uh the gospel of philip is some great uh kind of epistle commentary on the book of the nazarene they they fit each other perfectly they both come from england by the way um well at least the book of the nazarene does the gospel gospel of philip is clearly writing to the druids so that's england territory anyways this is what it says as for the wisdom sophia who is called sterile she is the mother of the angels the companion uh you see a coin, no-nos there the companion of the son is miriam magdalene or miriam migdal the teacher loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth When the disciples saw how he loved Miriam, they asked him, Why do you love her more than all of us? (laughs) I mean, did they want to be kissed on the mouth? I don't know. The Savior answered and said to them, Why do I not love you like her? When a blind man and one who sees are both together in darkness, they are no different from one another. When the light comes, then he who sees will see the light, and he who is blind will remain in darkness. The Gospel of Philip, 55-56. through 56. A different gospel this time, but he still loved her more than all the others. And as you can clearly see, the Talmudim were not thrilled with the arrangement. You will tell me it doesn't say mouth, as the manuscript is illegible there, and that the translators only decided to claim mouth for feisty purposes. Wrong. If, provoca- uh, if provocative is what they were after, they might have decided upon neck or Elbow or left earlobe. You will tell me he was just giving her a kiss on the cheek and that is perfectly normal between a gentleman, knights and a lady of the realm. Well, then, let me ask you something. Would you kiss a woman in the Middle East, particularly if she wasn't your wife? Publicly, I mean. There are conveniently placed stones in the scenario go ahead and give it a try unesco isn't there to protect you and even in ancient yasharil torah has strict laws about women in adultery there is the law of jealousy the bride price and all that as we have already seen the parashim never once accused yahusha of misconduct with a woman and you know they would have even by their laws, if given the chance, opportunity, if he's off, you know, kissing a woman in public. Their only complaint involved Miriam being unworthy to be given his affection. And they never, they never accused that of any other woman, interestingly enough. But as I've already shown, that was likely her father who did that. Nobody else came up to them and exclaimed, now you stop that. And let's not overlook the immediate context. The disciples were the only ones. They were jealous with the attention which Yahusha gave to Miriam rather than them. If he were merely greeting her with the kiss of a bishop among his clergy, then why were the disciples so insulted? Why would you complain that your pastor kissed a woman on the cheek and not yours? It probably had something to do with the fact that Miriam is also referred to as Yahusha's companion. I decided to add the Greek for your convenience. Koinonos has various meanings one of which includes marriage partner. But then again, it might be stating that she was his business partner or companion in the faith. Which is it? Don't lose track of the most obvious, that she was his companion. Kissing a business partner, really? The other Talmudim were not described using that term. And I am having a difficult time finding any other example in Scripture which might describe the male-female companion relationship in any other light than a helpmeet. But then don't overlook the starker comparison. It says, Wisdom was thought by many to be barren, and yet she was the mother of the angels. In Wisdom literature, we come to learn that she is also the mother of Yasharil. That is, once again, the context here. You might say Yahusha and Miriam held the same office of Koinonos as Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, and the Ruach Hakodesh. The comparison is given. And by the way, um, the, the Gospel of Philip is all over the, the feminine Ruach Hakodesh. I mean, he says the, the Ruach Hakodesh is feminine, not masculine. I'm just the one reporting upon it. Um, are we seeing yet another connection between Miriam and the lady of, of Hermas? I believe so. The idea behind neshach, which is the Hebrew word for kiss, implies two people breathing together or sharing in the same ruach. This is coming back to the, the union of ruach. When kissing her on the mouth, Yehusha and Miriam weren't simply exchanging their spiritual breath. They were unifying them into one. Nobody else was kissing Yahusha on the mouth. That is the meaning behind his saying, When the light comes, then he who sees will see the light, and he who is blind will remain in darkness. It was an idiom for marriage. You shall see why I came to that conclusion soon enough. Koinonos therefore gives us a greater depth of understanding as to what was going on in the companion departments. She was his feminine half. She was his Chua, his Eve to the second Adam consider okay so this comes from again we're still in the gospel of Philip the bridal chamber is not for the animals nor is it for the slaves nor for defiled women but it is for free men and virgins through the Ruach haKodesh, we are indeed begotten again but we are begotten through Messiah in the two we are we are anointed through the Ruach when we were begotten, we were united. None can see himself either in water or in a mirror without light. Nor can you see in light without mirror or water. For this reason, it is fitting to baptize in the two, in the lights and the water. Now the light is the oil of anointment. Hmm, another reference to the light. Sounds important. It is once again being relegated to the restored union of a man with his feminine counterpart in the bridal chamber as well as baptism only here we are fed one more clue the light of the oil of anointment something which Miriam and Yehusha would have been familiar with i will be told by the gnostic critics that a kiss on the mouth from the gnostic perspective symbolized the passing of the breath of the spiritual soul, a.k.a. knowledge, thereby designating the exchange exchanges between Yahusha and Miriam a strictly exercise rather than carnal. Because the Gnostics were apparently never physical, you know, staying clear of the bridal chamber. No wonder why they died off. They simply went around kissing each other, men and women in public, simply to upset everyone at the implications, which they weren't following through with behind the curtains. That must be it. The passing of gnosis between a man and woman in a kiss is a true statement, but it is only a half-truth. However you hold the knife, reposition the cake and cut it, the lip-locks were most certainly intimate, though not carnal, or rather a precursor to the bridal chamber. Difficult to frame that otherwise, even from the Gnostic standpoint. Just as assuredly a sexual intimacy between a man and a woman is a personal gnosis, which cannot be known or expressed by anyone else, but only felt between the two. You want gnosis, I have just directed you to it. Sex is gnosis, whether you like it or not. Reproduction can be taught in biology class. But the union of ruachoth uh, the, the, the cannot. All right? So let me just say that again. For all, all the people out there, they're like, oh, Gnosis is evil. And if, if you have Gnosis, that's, you know, that's unbiblical. It's like, no, 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 no. Sexual intimacy between a man and woman, the union of Ruakoth is Gnosis. Again, you could teach that in biology class. You can try to express to people what that's like. But you cannot know, you cannot have that inner gnosis of what that is like until you experience it. I think everyone here probably knows exactly what I'm talking about. Another great one, I, um, uh, another great example is like uh, that, that moment you hold your child for the first time. You know, you watch the child come out of the womb and you and you just pick it up and you hold it. And like you always wondered what it would be like to be a parent, a father, so on and so forth. And you see other people's children, but you can't know. You can't eternalize that until that moment. That is Gnosis. That is what it that that is what it means to be, I guess, a Gnostic, to to understand that there are some things spiritually that can only truly be felt. You can't express it otherwise. Anyways, getting back to this, and then we read filth like this. The sexual act is itself so shameful as to be intrinsically bad, Pope Innocent III. It's funny, his name is Pope Innocent. <laughs> I just cut <got> that. Pope, <laughs> apparently, Pope Innocent III was no friend of Gnosis. And also, a conversation about Messiah and the bridal chamber chamber would never be complete. Without the God-created man, and then Satan came along and slapped on the genitals crowd. They're everywhere, driving our subconscious. They hold a creator who is either incapable or unwilling to procreate at the forefront of their theology, and though clearly holding the monopoly, claim to have the only and final word on the matter. Meanwhile, at this very minute... I witnessed two dragonflies having sex. I actually wrote this in Missouri. I was sitting by a lake, and I I was literally writing this in my notepad, and these two dragonflies fell on my lap having sex. And just this morning, the ducks were going at it. That was also true. It was actually awful, the way they would treat the female ducks. My wife is nearly 40 weeks pregnant. So as you can see at this point here, when I wrote this, uh, Rivka was not yet born. More proof. Sex is everywhere. The world would cease regenerating without intercourse. I would even argue that it, would have exist- it, that it wouldn't have existed in the first place without it. Satan created nothing. After releasing the first draft of this paper, I was told that Yahushua could not possibly be Messiah if he had a wife. Chapter and verse, please. Chapter and verse. As if Yahushua was any less holy for doing or planning to do exactly what Adam and Chua were instructed to by their Heavenly Father. Yahusha, if I'm not mistaken, became the second Adam, but that's probably just a coincidence. Either he was human or he wasn't. The Trinitarian crowd will claim he was 100% human, but that he couldn't possibly have had sex because it would then be a conflict of interest with his being 100% triune. Well, which is it? To claim he was any less holy or subhuman for taking a woman into his bedchamber only serves to reveal the Satan-stiffened-my-penis argument when in fact the complete opposite is deemed true. Sex is holy when done right. I'm only getting started, though. The Gospel of Philip finds its core in the bridal chamber. This comes from uh, 122. No one can know when the husband and the wife have intercourse with one another, except the two of them. Indeed, marriage in the world is a mystery for those who have taken a wife. If there is a hidden quality to the marriage of defilement, how much more is the undefiled marriage a true mystery? Are you starting to see how this lines up with the book of the Nazarene? It is not fleshly, but pure. It belongs not to desire, but to the will. It belongs not to the darkness or the night, but to the day and the light. Boom, there it is. This is precisely how Yahushua referred to his kiss with Miriam. If you recall, they were in the light. Only a blind man could stand in the light and fail to see it. Does that, does that quote make more sense to you now? Here, Philip describes two sorts of marriages those of defilements. And of the world which is in itself a mystery but then there are those which are undefiled and so much more a mystery continuing if a marriage is open to the public in the light of day it has become prostitution and the bride plays the harlot not only when she receives the seat of her man outside of their bride a uh, bedroom but even if she slips out of her bedroom and is and is seen Let her show herself naked only to her father and her mother and to the friend of the betrothed and the children of the bride chamber. These are permitted to enter into the bridal chamber. Others cannot hear the voice of the lover and the beloved, nor breathe their perfume. Wow, that's intimate. Uh, Very descriptive. That is where the kiss leads to, in case you were wondering. The Bridal Chamber, the embrace which unites the feminine and the masculine into one breathing ruach, inevitably ends up there. It is a gnosis which would be relegated to spiritual harlotry if anyone else except the two united halves would experience or know. There are others permitted into the Bridal Chamber, of course. The father and the mother of the bride may enter, as well as the friend of the betrothed and the produce of their union, but I'm gathering very few. What uh, and you know, this is like what he just kind of exper- described there, that scene, it's it's kind of interesting because it it probably takes us back to maybe how sexual intercourse was experienced a little bit more thousands of years ago, uh when you had more intimate housing. Um a, a good example of this would be like a, a woman's hair, right? Another a woman never let her hair down in public. That would be considered being a harlot. Uh, but if she were in her own household. She could let her hair down and her children could see it. It's okay for her children in her household to see her hair down, uh, like it says here, but not out on the street. That would be harlotry. And of course, it's still like that in the Middle East to this day. What is the voice of the lover and the beloved exactly, but the two joined in the bridal chamber, breathing heavily together? Do I need to replicate the sound of a climax for you? Even at a whisper, it can be heard from short distances. If you think others being permitted to listen in is perverse, have you observed the layout or perchance ventured into nearly any home outside of modern Western civilization? Depending upon one's financial uh, prowess, the marriage bed might be positioned in the same room as the bed of others. Sometimes a curtain may apply, but if not, roommates were expected to turn their heads and shut their eyes, but not before first growing up. Also, Why it is vital that only the inner circle be allowed into the bridal chamber. Don't miss out on the last part. Only those invited in can breathe their perfume. There is another nard connection for you. Without skipping a beat, the fragrance is once again connected with sexual arousal. When Miriam anointed Yahusha, the house of uh, Simon was filled with its ointment. But only Yahusha's entourage and her family were there to experience it. The betrothment of Yahushua with Miriam had been hidden from nearly everyone, even from many of us who were invited to read about it. Again, from the Gospel of Philip, we read, And the Holy of Holies is the bridal chamber. Trust and consciousness in the embrace are exalted above all. Those who truly pray to Yerushalim are to be found only in the Holy of Holies, the bridal chamber. Philip writes it twice, hoping to drive his point home. The Holy of Holies is the bridal chamber. And in case you missed it, the Holy of Holies is the bridal chamber. And it only makes sense that it would be. If done right, then it is strictly in the light of the bridal chamber, where we create another living soul in our likeness. And there is nothing filthy or sinful or subhuman in that. In other news, the Holy of Holies is the holiest place on earth. The Ruach Kakadesh does not hide her face from it. And certainly, Satan did not custom design an ornament or two, despite inner guilt, which might demand otherwise. Miriam was invited into it, and why wouldn't she be? Don't get, don't get hung up on the number of people who reject any notion of their betrothal, Yahushua's and Miriam's, because really, it's not for everyone. How many Levite priests do you suppose were invited into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem? Very few. Why should it be any different for those who are trusted with the mysteries of heaven? Here is what uh, Shaloma, uh, Solomon, says on these matters. It is the glory of Elohim to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. The heavens for heights and the earth for depth and the heart of kings is unsearchable. Proverbs 25, 2 through 3. Yahushua has secrets as he is not in the habit of casting pearls before swine. I'm not saying you're the swine. If you fail to see what has become so obvious to me during the course of this investigation, then perhaps you are simply not ready nor willing to accept this particular mystery. I couldn't say either way. Contrarily, I may simply be wrong about everything so far discussed. I am most willing to be, I just don't see that as the case. I claim you can't see it, and you claim the same as me. And now we can be friends. What I do know for certain is that the swine would, and indeed have, stomped all over this one, given the opportunity. I will remind you again of her harlotry according to Roman Catholicism. Talk about calling the cattle black. Most recently, the people attempting to push Miriam of Migdal as the bride of Yahusha into the 4 have no love for you has set-apart ways, by their own admission. Nearly just as many don't even believe scripture to be true, from what I found. Those who are pushing Maryam to be the bride. What are they so pressed, I should say, why are they so pressed on doing it then? If Yehusha isn't the only begotten son of Elohim, high priest and king over humanity, and he's just some dude who was crucified by the Romans, then what does any of this matter? It wouldn't matter, but it does. Because Yahushua is the living son of Elohim. And everything he says or does is modeled after our father in heaven. That is why it is the honor of kings to search out what Yahuwah has hidden. And in matters such as this one, discretion is key. All right, that was a lot in that one. And um, I think I'll make this within the two hours that I originally hoped. Uh, The next section, if you need caught up. Is on page 100 where Yosef of Arimathea comes into this. Britain was the place to go, apparently, but Miriam of Migdal didn't want to end up there. France was her cup of tea. Supposing you've read my report on the cities of the Millennial Kingdom, then you will know there was a concentrated effort to bring Messiah's Bezorah, his gospel, to the lost kingdom of Yasharil. Which had been established by the prophet Yermiahu, that'd be Jeremiah, and was waiting to blossom along the shoreline. Many of the apostles, as well as the 70 arrived there, one of which was Aristobulus, Kepha's father in law. Marcus was Kepha's traveling companion, and he married a woman from the Isles. There are others, including Philip and Simon, uh, and we, of course,
1: I will do what I can to
0: show, show the Yosef and Miriam of Migdal connection. There are, however, some biographical tidbits of information which I have gathered over the years regarding Yosef, that is, and they're worth mentioning. All right, so the, this one comes from the Book of the Nazarene. Now, one of the elders of the Supreme Council was a man named Josias, called Yosef of Arimathea. Son of Joachim, son of Nathan, son of Eliezer, son of Eliahu, son of Joachim, son of Zadok, who lived on the Merchant's Road, a day's journey from Yerushalayim. He also owned an estate northwest of the city. He had a brother-in-law named Nicodemus. so That's interesting to see that they're related. And both were secret followers of Yehusha. Joseph of Arimathea, the wise commander, had been present at the council when it, when it sat in judgment on Yahusha, and he supported him. But many more who could have done so were absent because of the hour, the book of the Nassim, twenty-one, seven. Also, you know, I have pointed out that basically everyone mentioned in the Gospels are like all related to Yahusha. So it's interesting if Joseph of Arimathea is his, his great uncle, um, and then Nicodemus is his brother-in-law, that means Nicodemus is also in Yahusha's family. Just think about that. His brother-in-law was Nicodemus, and they were both elders of the Supreme Council. It doesn't say here, but Nicodemus was likewise present and accounted for when the Sanhedrin sat a judgment over Yahusha, just as as Yosef as was. So there's that. Another thing about him is that he was rich and affluential. It doesn't outright say that here, but come on. How else do you land in the lap of the Sanhedrin? The other giveaway is his living in two separate locations. One on the merchant's road, a day's journey from Yerushalayim, and then in another estate northwest of the city. Kind of paints the picture, don't you think? The garden tomb, which Yosef had originally intended to bury himself in, also happens to be located northwest of the city. I'm guessing they're, uh, I'm guessing they're not the same location, though. The following passage helps to explain why. So this comes from Luke 20, 23. And behold, there was a man named Yosef, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Ramah, a city of the Yahudim, who also himself waited for the kingdom of Elohim. Very few people seem to know where Arimathea is, and to the point that some claim it to be a mythical city. The sufferer, which I just read from, goes ahead and gives the town its Hebrew-correct title. Rama is located some eight kilometers or eight miles northwest of Yerushalayim. That would be the earlier mentioned estate northwest of the city. Five miles is quite the commute, though. Yosef would have probably needed an additional apartment in Yerushalayim to avoid rush hour traffic. Rama is where Samuel, Samuel, or Shemuel, the prophet, was born, as well as the location where Yirmiyahu gathered with the Yahudim after Babylon destroyed Yerushalayim. Same city. That second mentioned fact may not be a coincidence. I have already taken you through the uprooting and planting process, which Yermiyahu was a part of. Not going through all of that again. And then here's the link here if you need, to, in case you missed it a couple of pages ago. Rama was a strategic location where the rod of kingship was eventually passed over to Britain on two separate locations. Yermiyahu was the first and Yosef of Rama would be the second. I have always wondered why Joseph was given a city for a name title but now we are given a possible reason. I simply didn't latch onto the significance of that city then. The same passage also informs us that Yosef is one of the few people mentioned in the New Testament who is called righteous. Of course uh, the the just calls him just, but it's the same thing. Yes, righteous. I counted eight names in total. Uh, in the New Testament, that number includes Yosef, the father of Yehusha, as well as Yehusha. So that's two right there. Now uh, you got six left. But as you can see here, Lucas 23:50 calls him just, which is the exact same thing as righteous. Not bad, considering he kept company with the Sanhedrin. Another fun fact is that Yosef of Arimathea was Yehusha's great uncle through Miriam, his mother, and so it only makes sense that he would pull her away to safety, Miriam of Migdal. You don't have to take my word on his relations and can look that up for yourself among the ancient historians. There are actually quite a few claims which I am unable to substantiate at this time. Here are a few of them. Yosef was born in Arimathea, Rama in 41 BC, dying in 45 AD at the age of 86 in Glastonbury, England. He made his fortune in the tin trade. At the time, England was the, lar- the largest producer of tin mining, though the business went well beyond the Mediterranean, stretching all the way across the Atlantic to South America. Yosef very likely had a hand in all of that. I will get to that part where Yosef ended up in Britain. We-, we have records on that. What I haven't been able to get a good fix on is his earlier residences in Britain, as well as the claim that Yahusha traveled there with him in his youth. Chariots of Fire is a movie I haven't watched in a really long time. The 1980s, if we're keeping a proper accounting. I was young and can't remember the overall plot, but do distinctly recall the beach running sequence and its openings, as well as lots and lots of running in other places. None of that is probably important to the conversation. The Vangelis soundtrack, however, is. I do confess to owning a few copies on vinyl. Yes, a few. They have been set down upon the turntable often, and it has been that way in my household for any number of years. There is a track on that album, "Cherry Sapphire," Fire, containing a church organ and lyrics sung by a choir, which has long held my interest. Jerusalem is the name of it. The words recited within the song goes as follows. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded there, or here, among those dark satanic mills? Bring me my my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O, O clouds unfold bring me my chariots of fire that's where you get the title in the movie i will not cease from mental flight or mental fight nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built jerusalem in england's green and pleasant land the song begins with a question and the instant in the instance that the listener is slow to latch onto whose feet is being implicated as having walked england's mountain green The singers quickly rephrase their question into something more descriptive. The Holy Lamb of Elohim, who was on England's pleasant pastures, seen as none other than Yahushua Mashiach, the Messiah. We are often told this is a reference to his having traveled there as a boy, but I am not so certain about that. The next proposal by the choir has us pondering if his divine countenance ever shined forth upon them clouded hills. That may be a childhood reference, but if I had to choose one or the other, I'd go with a resurrected Yehusha. The reason being is that we are then asked if Yerushalayim was built there among its dark satanic hills. Say what? How does the building of a city in any way relate to a teenager traveling around with great uncle Yosef in the wealthy tin trade? Or the wealthy tin trader? It doesn't. The songwriter is toying with us. He seems to be implying that Yerushalayim was there, until it wasn't, and that they could resolve to bring it back what was lost to them again. That's a Once in Future King reference, if you hadn't noticed. I am thinking Britain was the re-established kingdom of Yasharel upon the earth and the epicenter of the Thousand-Year Reign. It's all told to us in the song, but nobody seems to be paying attention. Again, this all goes back to Miriam of Migdal and why her arrival in Britain, rather than France, is so important to the narrative. France isn't a deal-breaker by any means. I just think she went further than what we are told, and I'm, I'm about to get into it. Retracing Joseph of Rama's steps again, this is what we read. In the year 8036, the party of Joseph of Arimathea and those who went with him into exile was put out to sea in a vessel without sails or oars this vessel drifted and finally reached massilia where they were saved from massilia joseph and his company passed into britain and after preaching the gospel there died this comes from baronius ecclesiastical annals baronius writes a passage having nothing to do with miriam of migdal seemingly but only to the untrained eye it says joseph of rama went into exile with a party of others Presumably the people of his household. Well, Miriam of Migdal was a member of his household. We simply haven't gotten there quite yet. Place a bookmark on the 36 AD date. But, when, but then look at where Joseph of Rama ended up. Massilia is a city on the southern coastline of France. And so what is said regarding Miriam of Migdal is ultimately true. She did go to France. If only I could find a reference, any reference, really, to a northbound journey across the English Channel to the White Cliffs of Dover and beyond. But so far, I I got nothing. Let's keep trying, though. Here is what we read regarding Miriam of Magdal's journey. There was that time with uh, with the Apostles, St. Maximin which was one of the 72 disciples of our Adonai, to whom the blessed Mary Magdalene was committed by St. Peter. And then when the disciples were departed, St. Maximin, Mary Magdalene, and Lazarus, Lazarus her brother, or Eliezer, uh, Martha, her sister, so there's that Mary-Martha connection, uh, Marcel, Chamber of Martha, and St. Sedoni, which was born blind and after Illuminid of our Adonai, all these together and many other Christian men were taken of the miscreants and put in a ship in the sea without any tackle or rudder for to be drowned. But by the purveyance of Almighty Deus or God or Elohim, they came all to Marcellus, the golden legend Mary Magdalene. Well, that's strange. Mary Magdalene was put out to sea in a ship without any rudder and oars or any other sailing devices. Didn't the exact same thing happen to Yosef of Rama as well? He's certainly not mentioned in the party. Therefore, I guess we'll have to chalk it up to another coincidence. But wait, it says she ended up in Marseille as as well. I'm probably pronouncing the name of that town wrong, but you guys know how I am with French. I checked. The distance from the port of um, Haifa to the port of Marseille is 1942 nautical miles. 1942. Am I am I supposed to expect that separate uh, that separate parties of people were punished for being naughty, sent out to sea and all landed in the exact same location, but on two separate occasions? Nobody really knows who Maximin is, though he is traditionally named as the builder of the first church on the site of the present. uh, I guess that it's A.I.X. Cathedral. I'm not even going to try. Ax. I don't even know how to pronounce that. His wiki article is slim enough to be well beyond anorexic in suspicion. He lived and presumably died, but that is about all. The Golden Legend claims he was one of the 70, but then so was Joseph of Arimathea. It says 72, we'll let that slide. Accompanying Maximum and Miriam were also Miriam's sister Martha, as well as their brother Eliezer, and somebody named Sidoni. Looks like the entire family. All we are told now... I'm not going to read this here. This is a, a, a clipping from um, uh, Wikipedia. Uh, you need a magnifying glass to look at that thing. All we are told by the Roman Catholic officials is that Maximin had Miriam of Migdal under his care until he didn't, which is highly suspect. I'm not saying Maximin wasn't a real individual. Then again, that's kind of what I'm saying, that he and Yosef of Rama are the same person. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't surprise me the least. Plenty of people went by different names back then. The only other connection I can think of is a close family member, either on Miriam and Martha's side or Yahusha's. Here is what we so far have. Maximin and his party were sent from Yehuda to France in an oarless vessel, but then so was Yosef of Rama and his party. The only difference between the two is that Maximin is listed as having Miriam under his care, whereas Yosef of Rama is not, so far. The other difference is that Joseph doesn't stay in the south of France. No, Baronius uh, has him traveling even further north to Britain. This will take further digging. The sources we have make it out like Joseph of Rama and Miriam of Mignol arrived in France by complete accident. That may be so. I couldn't really say. It, wouldn't, it would certainly be ironic that the tide sent Joseph of all people right back towards the home of his origin. Know that I am not putting the adrifted sea story into doubt when, in fact, Yahuwah Elohim had already told him in advance where he was to go. So this comes from the Briton book, which is uh, another one of the texts where we get uh, the book of the Nazarene, just so you know. It's one of the accompanying texts. Yosef Yo- uh, said, Know this, great king. I am a servant of the great Elohim of light. He's uh, speaking to a Druidic king, I believe. I am sent in order to build a church here where it will serve your people well. I will establish a place of light unto them. I come to teach the perfect commandments. That's interesting. That's the Torah. Ask among your own about me, for I am not unknown to them. I have no, so he's not unknown. He's, they, they, they've seen him before there. I have no human teacher for whom I learned the wisdom from where I got these things. I lived in the light of Christ, but, or a Mashiach, but learned tardily. Then I had a message from Elohim himself. Go preach to those who dwell at the edge of the earth. The book of Brits, in 4.22. Telling Yosef to go and preach to those who dwell at the edge of the earth was the same thing as saying return to his homeland. Notice how he didn't arrive in Deutschland or Norway or even China or India, for that matter. No, he went to his homeland, which will be expounded upon hereafter. The why is a good question. And and by that I mean why Miriam of Migdal was chosen to journey there with him. Yosef's fate is again expounded upon in the book of the Nazarene. It is thought that Yosef may have actually written the book, though I am more inclined to conclude that Aristobulus and maybe even Philip had a heavy hand in it. For starters, the writer of Nazarene appears to have been a disciple of Yochanan the Baptist before his introduction to Mashiach, and secondly, had intimate knowledge of Kepha's household in Galilee. Aristobulus can be traced both as his two sons were recognized disciples of Yochanan, and he was head of the mentioned household. But then thirdly, the Gospel of Philip comes across like written commentary upon the narrative in Nazarene. I'm not completely sure who the author is, but that's not important. Here is what we learn regarding the fate of Yosef. And so this is quoting from the book of the Nazarene again, chapter 21. Despite his authority, there was evidence against Yosef, and he was in prison, being kept under a constant guard. We read that same story in uh, the Gospel of Nicodemus, by the way. One Shabbat during the night hours, the Ruach of Yahusha was projected to Yosef, so he was comforted. But the guards, seeing it, fainted with fear. Then Yosef was brought before Pontius Pilate, but the governor found no fault in him, and he was released. And that, all those, that same story is told in the uh, Gospel of Nicodemus. I love that reference. Later, Annas and his son-in-law, who were then the high priests of the Yahudim, came to the house of Yosef, bringing with them the holy books written on scrolls within their box. They requested that he swear upon it in the sacred name of Elohim, but he made oath only that he had done no wrong or broken no law. The wise commander remained in his house for many days, after which he went about undisturbed. So he was thrown into prison. Not that it helps us much in this discussion, but it lines up quite nicely, as I mentioned, with the Gospel of Nicodemus. Because the exact same incident happened to him there in the same book, Annas and Caiaphas discovered that Yehusha had proclaimed himself Mashiach in the year five thousand five hundred. We see an investigation played out here, though their conclusions are not shown. It is Annas and Caiaphas and their conspirators, I believe, who began the processing of, of, of the process of corrupting the dates into what has become the Masoretic timeline. That's a whole other story, though, despite the fact that it all connects with the thousand year reign discussion. Jumping ahead to the next verse. Then, when Pontius Pilate returned to Rome, Joseph departed from his home shores, coming to uh, Set Naduin, from whence he moved to a well at the foot of a hill. He brought with him a clay cup, which had been set in silver by a silversmith, and this was the cup used by Yahusha. Pontius Pilate returned to Rome. He is generally thought to have bowed out in 37 AD, though, as we have already seen, Baronius thought it was one year earlier in 36 AD, in 36. The reason why Joseph was deported immediately after Pilate's parting relies upon the fact that they were friends. I also suspect that Pilate became a, a convert. At any rate, Joseph was placed under Pilate's protection and the Sanhedrin wanted their revenge. It's why the boat story and placing Miriam under his care or a member of his household makes the most sense. Set, uh, the place called Set-Nadowin was a location known to the author, though is apparently no longer identifiable. Even Microsoft Word doesn't recognize the spelling and wants to autocorrect, but I won't let it. Believe it or not, his move to a well at the foot of, the, of a hill is all we need to identify Glastonbury. There is probably a well at the foot of a hill in hundreds, if not thousands, of locations across this realm. And so you're probably wondering how I came to that conclusion. It's in, it's in the preface of the book. A scribe who wrote uh, Nazarene, the book of Nazarene had this to say about Yosef of arimathea Rama. When Elid, our father in the faith, came in full flight from afar, seeking refuge beyond the confines of his prosecutors' dominion, he set his collystone in Lanavalok. Here, when he spoke to them, the Druthen said, We have never been without the light of truth, yet you seek to bring another light, strange to us, which seems less bright than ours. And I, I just put there the Gospel of Collide 2 1. Don't make me lay out even more brick rooms for you. Elite is Yosef of Arimathea Rama. You can take my word for it or purchase your own copy and compile our hours of research. In other places he is referred to as Yosef Idawin, the father of their faith. The land is in Lanavalak Le- refers to a sacred enclosure, and avalok as you shall soon see, is the name of the king and his kingdom, whom Yosef of Arimathea Rama was directly related to. And it says in the book in the Britain Book 521, Yosef Idawin was related to Avalak, whose kingdom bordered that of Arviagus through Anna the Unfaithful. He converted Claudia Rufina, hmm, who's that? The daughter of Ceridu, previously called Gladys, who married Pudens, a Roman, and had a daughter, Pudentia. That you, you guys should um, be directed to one of Paul's letters on that. There are some recognizable names from Paul's epistles to the Romans. If I have ever seen them. I refuse to get distracted though. Yosef was of a royal descent through this Avalok fellow. Very likely the kingdom of Yasharil established in these parts by Yermiyahu. Avalok. Say it again Avalok. Once more Avalon. Not a typo. I spelled it right the first time. Avalon. Yosef I- idawin of Arimathea was descended from the kingdom of Avalon. It's most certainly where he settled. And then, uh, Melgwyn of Landath, the uncle of Saint David, the Welsh Bishop of (laughs) Menu, a lot of Welsh names in this, says the same thing. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the the noble decurion, received his everlasting rest with his 11 associates in the Isle of Avalon. He lies in the southern angle of the uh, bifurcated line of the Oratorium of the Adorable Virgin. He has with him. The two white vessels of silver, which were filled with the blood and the sweat of the great prophet Yahusha. And now for the mention which you thought I was snubbing. The Holy Grail. I wasn't snubbing anything. There are simply too many details in these small quotes to cover. I am attempting to establish Glastonbury with Avalon and any other number of small but important details. I probably overlooked several already. As a reminder... We are on a quest for Miriam of Migdol, and no, I am not suggesting for you that she and the Holy Grail, nor some son or daughter of Yahushua HaMashiach are it. There are others who have written books on the subject. Dan Brown comes to mind. This is not one of them. If the Grail is a bloodline, and for clarity purposes, I am not stating that it is, then that is an investigation for another time. It would be terribly difficult to convince me that a clay cup set in silver by a silversmith was somehow a metaphor for a bloodline as if this were one of daniel's dream interpretations speaking of which here is another blood reference this comes again from the Breton book idowan was buried in a shirt of fine linen which he had worn when burying yahusha and which was stained with three spots of blood on the chest he was buried by the two forked cross a lot of you keep getting freaked out looking at pictures of the two-forked cross. Well, there you go. The saints had lived in 12 huts around a never-diminishing will at the foot of the holy hill. Yosef was buried in the very shirt of linen which he had worn while burying Yahusha. There were th- three spots of blood stained upon his chest. Seems as though the blood of Mashiach was important to Yosef. Still not seeing how any of this is a coded message for a royal bloodline, though. Do you understand? That doesn't mean there isn't a family line to be had. I'm simply not seeing it in these... Text quite yet. Therefore, the Grail legend will have to be saved for another occasion. I have started out reading from the Book of the Nazarene. Here is what I wanted you to see. Getting back to the Book of the Nazarene, Chapter Twenty One. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to ruin the book for some of you guys who haven't read it. Uh, <laughs> giving away the ending of the book. Some say Joseph of Arimathea married Miriam, mother of Yahusha, after the death of his wife. But this is a known heresy put about by those in ignorance of what is written for his wife was not that Miriam. What the? <laughs> well, that just tosses everything I've researched into the garbage in a hurry. Yosef married Miriam, Miriam of Migdal, or some other Miriam. How could he? That double-crossing, low-down, double-timer. That was my first reaction when reading it. We're finally getting somewhere, but come on! How does somebody go about ending a book like that? It's literally the last verse. It gets all scandalous and up in your face and then takes a plunge right off the white cliffs of Dover. Try not to have a heart attack. How is, Mary, Mary, uh, how is marrying Miriam, uh, the mother of Yehusha, scandalous exactly? She was a widow needing taken care of. She was also his niece, and that's kosher. Miriam was on the older end of the spectrum, but then so was Yosef nothing heretical there hath the two consented. Seems to me that the scribe who ended the book with his added commentary had a score to settle. Yosef of Arimathea-Rama did not write that, and the writer of the Gospel of Philip sure didn't write that. To better understand what is happening, we will have to retrace the conversation between Mary of and Yahusha on the night that she anointed him with the expensive fragrance. This will be a short review. So reading it once more from the book of the Nostrum, 19. Miriam said, Sire, I have been a sinner, but have not sinned this last year, nor shall I sin again. Should I love once more, I will not now claim the rights of marriage which I once repudiated. Yahushua said, Love is a blending of ruachoth and not a union of flesh. Woe to those whose love compounds discord in the place where love is fulfilled. If these things confound you, read the books of wisdom. Some of you were getting ready to write me a letter explaining how Miriam of Migdal couldn't possibly have married Yahusha because she said it would never happen again. Obviously, that's not quite uh, that's not uh, quite yet because she did marry again. Complications arise then, don't they? A dominant theme of Nazarene is the multitude of marriages and the union of Ruokoth in only one of them. If you jumped ahead rather than reading the previous chapters then, it is your loss. You will have to retrace your steps on your own. The complication relies upon the passages shown uh, whereas Yehusha and Miriam of Migdal became a unified Ruachoth. How could she become unified with Mashiach but then get with another man? She already said her love was reserved for the next man and nobody else. Even if Yosef did marry Miriam, that Miriam as he put it, then there is something else going on. A marriage, perhaps, but one of protection rather than intimacy or even sexual fornication. Bereshia has already given us the inverted precedence in that Abraham told Pharaoh, as well as Evimelech, that Sarah was his sister rather than a wife. The reason being is that she was old and beautiful and everybody wanted a piece of her. Should Yosef truly desire to be the protector of Yehusha's betrothed, then a civil ceremony would be the most proper could support her without a turning of heads, and the kings of the earth would have to come through him first before claiming. There is more to this, so you know. The Book of the Nazarene have ended the same source material as we dig through. The Book of Britain again says, after, I, after our Adonai died, having been hung on the cross outside the city walls of Yerushalayim, Yosef of Abramatha, or Arimathea, took Miriam, the mother of Yehusha, into his home until Yocanid could make suitable arrangements. And then he was called Guardian of the Lady. What a fun title. Which, which title became confused in Britain with that of Guardian of the Sacred vessel? Let's see if I got this right. Yosef started out as Miriam, the mother of Yehusha's caretaker, but only until Yochanid made arrangements. Because if you recall, you know, on the cross... Uh, but you said this mother to uh, Yochanan makes sense i'm following i think he then became known as Miriam or mariam and who became a guardian of her joseph or Yochanan? and now i'm confused <laughs> where are you where are you at on a one to ten scale of confusion that is the text can be read either way i'm thinking this is yet another attempt at erasing any identity confusion regarding who Yosef carted off to Brits and her fans or wherever, but it isn't working. It seems even back then people thought the holy was a lady when they are two separate things. Oh, I he married her, Miriam that is, the other Miriam. Which is it? Guardian doesn't sound like a husband unless Yo' is the guardian of Miriam, which still wouldn't be her husband anyways. But then how is that title getting confused with the sacred vessel guardian? Hopefully this isn't confusing for you guys. Why be so vague? Assuming this is still Yosef we're dealing with rather than Yokanan, then it seems to me that the guardian title is precisely what he was doing. He was guarding the lady. Guarding the lady meant taking care of her, like what Yokanan was doing with the other Miriam, the, the mother of Yahusha, keeping one hand upon the sword and the sheath so that the bad guys wouldn't lay a hand upon the woman. This is the betroth the mashiach we're talking about. It's why there's so many coded messages throughout the annals of scripture, much is instituted, but very few come right out and say it. Other scribes simply won't believe it, or would rather not
1: have a married mashiach. Four
0: is a pattern, and what do we see happening on the pattern scale? Miriam of Migdal, the woman who poured nard upon the feet of the man whom she'd soon be speaking alone within the garden, ends up on the same boat with the keeper of the grail. Not only that, but on the opposite end of the world, far from the clutches of the Yahudim and probably even Rome. What also just so happens to be the same geographical location as what I have proposed to be the epicenter of the thousand year reign. That is five or six coincidences, though there are more, far more. And I have already lost count. You and I both know, however, that a pattern in the dozens or the hundreds will always be a coincidence for those who have flagged this topic as the unthinkable thoughts in the face of their favored Trinity doctrine. Is it in any way ironic that these same individuals often consider themselves to be the bride of Christ? Ask them what that means. It's all supposed to be a metaphor, apparently. And, wow, I survived that. That wore me out. I, uh, I managed not to stumble through, I think, a lot of the sentences. So, um, <laughs> tell me what you guys think. Um, don't all line up to stone me at once. And uh, eggs are sp- expensive now, you know. So, um, I'll take a few minutes to, to vent your thoughts. And then we'll jump into a
1: reading of the Book of the Nazarene.
0: It's probably a lot to take in, and, um, you know, that's OK. It's OK. I, I threw a lot at you guys. I, it was one of those where I put a lot of, I think, thought into that, a lot of um, hopefully it was a lot of meat for you guys. And uh, again, if you disagree and you're like, I don't care how much you throw at me, I will never believe that Yahushua HaMashiach would ever marry a woman, certainly not marry the She was unworthy for him. Um, that, that, I'm sorry, that came across as a little passive aggressive. Uh, but, you know, it, it. hopefully, even if you disagree, at the end of the day, hopefully you learn something in that. Hopefully you're like, wow, I feel like I understand a little bit more on some of these extra biblical books and so on and so forth.
2: Okay, I'm here. Um, I think that if you combine all three of your different presentations about Mary, that it would be a bestseller. You should combine them all, put them in a book and publish it.
0: I'm going to take a quick drink of coffee here because I got several more chapters to read. I read for two hours and my eyes are still uh, keeping up. Uh, thank you, carrots that I've been eating. And my voice is still um, accounted for, I think. So let's get right to this. Chapter one of the Book of the Nazarene. The birth of Yehusha the Nazarite, who became our master and interpreter of Elohim and the Torah, a worthy vessel for the greatest manifestation of the power of the Ruach HaKodesh seen on earth, occurred in this manner. About the time Yochanan the forerunner, commenced teaching the way of the wilderness beside Yarden, and the year before Herod died, when Augustus Caesar ruled the Roman world, a babe was born. The father was y- Now, uh, quickly comment here. I, I want to... As I said last time, I want to read this and try to comment as little as possible. I can't let that go. Uh this is one of the most talked about things. It says here that uh that Yokanan began his teaching about the time that Yehusha was born. And I'm like, well, wait a second. What? So, um and I, I I I don't know if that's a translational thing uh because if you recall, he his mother Elizabeth, he fled with her. And as a babe, and they went off into the wilderness, I kind of think it's, it's it, maybe that's a mistranslation. It means the ministry of. OK, so just f- for what it is, for what it's worth. OK, where was I? Um, in the year before Herod died, when Augustus Caesar ruled the Roman world, a babe was born. The father was Joseph, son of thy, a carpenter of Galilee, and the mother Maryam his wife, who had been a virgin pledged to Yahweh in the temple by her father Simon, son of Joachim, son of Nathan, son of Eliaser. A decree had gone out that all who claimed kinship within the house of David should be gathered for enrollment at the city of David called Bethlehem in Galilee. Therefore, Yosef, being rightfully born into the stock of David, took the scroll of his parentage and went to Bethlehem so his kinship could be established. Oh, I can't let this slide. I'm sorry, you guys. Remember when we went through a lot of different books where it talked about Miriam was raised in the temple? I remember that became kind of a scandalous issue. Um, We were trying to discuss, is this Catholic or what? This book that we're reading now is like the most un-Catholic book. And it says right there, it says... Um Miriam his wife who had been a virgin pledged to Yahuwah and the temple okay so there you have it right there she was pledged to the temple raised in the temple as a virgin so that, that was one of those there's so many little details in here that just connects the different books So it's um, it's un- unbelievable I think we're on verse 4 now Miriam being then heavy with child longed in her heart to be among the, her kinsmen and she prevailed upon Yosef to take her for Bethlehem was only a day's journey from them. The two with a... <laughs> she <laughs> prevailed. How, <laughs> how, many, how much did she have to uh, argue or persist with her husband to take her? And he's like, okay, fine. We'll take the day's journey to Bethlehem to have the baby. The two with a servant came to Bethlehem at eventide. But because so many had gathered, the inns were filled then, as Miriam's time was close upon her after the journey, a man took pity on her and provided a cave used as a stable. There the travelers found shelter and rest. Pause again. That is the most messed up thing that, like, for all you women out there who have been in labor and all you men out there, have you ever seen a woman in labor? It's like you would think somebody would see poor Miriam out in the street in labor and go, like, here, here's a chair. Like, just, you know, sit on something. Here's a sofa, you know? Like, nobody was willing to offer her a bed. So this one guy is like, "Okay, fine. Here's a cave. You can come into the cave." That night, Miriam's labors came upon her and she suffered the pangs of childbirth and cried out in pain. Now, this right here is a little different than some of what we read that um you know, the the prophecy and I think it was Isaiah that she, she would that he would come forth without pain. And then we read uh the gospel of infancy gospel of yaakov and others which said that it was the same thing. So I don't know. Take that for what it is. Here we see one that doesn't match up with some of the other books, and might I say, perhaps a prophecy. Um, I've, I've, I, for one, think he came into the world um, without her going through the labor pains. Nearby, some shepherds were tending sheep, for in the midst of so many strangers, these needed protection, and hearing her cry went to help. They provided a shepherd's basket, which was filled with straw, and placed it in the manger, and the newborn babe was wrapped in the clothes brought for him. After eight days had elapsed, the child was named Yeshua, meaning one who delivers. For an angel of Yahuwah had appeared to Yosef in a dream, saying, That which lies with Miriam, your wife, is filled with the power of the Ruach HaKodesh and will respond to the hopes of men. Later, men called him Yehusha, and because he fulfilled their hopes and was anointed with his power of the Ruach Hakodesh, he became acknowledged as the Messiah. Now, the stable was against the hill, behind an inn where sages from the east were saying, Men of Sastira, wise in the books of heaven, and of Nimrod. That excited me so much reading that. Who carried the cross of fire. That's interesting, too. The sacred fire, the cross of fire. So Yosef sent for them, requesting they come and foretell the child's future, for such was the custom. One of the sages said, It is strange indeed, for this child, for this child is born under no, uh, no usual star, but under one that is a star in appearance only and not in nature, having a power not in other stars. He is destined for greatness and will motivate events touching the lives of all men. When the word of this was passed around, there was much excitement among those belonging to the house of David. And many, remembering the prophecies of Yocanon, for they had passed his way, wondered in their hearts, Is this not he for whom we wait, the consolation of the Yahudim and deliverer of men? This displeased the people of Bethlehem who awaited another deliverer. When the sages spoke of the matter at their journey's end in Jerusalem and word came of the excitement among those of the house of David in Bethlehem, there was great consternation among the priest and learned men. They tried to discover where the babe was, but the sages answered deviously and said, His star points towards the east. An elder of the house of David attending the blessing of the child on the eighth day, lifting up his voice and declared, Surely this is he who has been promised to redeem us out of the hands of evil. This is he upon whom the power of the Ruach Ruach HaKodesh will descend, bestowing strength, compassion, and wisdom. Surely he will rule in the kingdom of Elohim. When the king heard about these things and that a babe had been born, who many claimed was destined to be the deliverer, he was greatly disturbed and summoned the council. With the council were learned scribes and elders who disputed among themselves concerning the babe. Some said that while Yahuwah's anointed would be born in Bethlehem, the deliverer would not. For the birth of Yahuwah's anointed in that place had been foretold by the prophets. Others said it might not be more than an enlightener who was expected to be born at that time. However, when many agreed that Yahuwah's anointed and the deliverer might be the same person, the king sent three men to discover the child. Just... uh, to note there, um, it, it we'll say this a couple other times in the book, this is a really interesting insight that uh, many back then believed that there would be two messiahs that kind of come simultaneously. One would be the anointed with the, the, the teachings, and the other would be like a, like a a victor over the Romans, right? He would be the deliverer. And, um, and so here we see, well, they're saying, well, maybe he'll be both of them at once. We don't really know. The dispute before the council had been long, Long, and Yosef had been forewarned, so when the men sent by Herod came to Bethlehem, Yosef had departed with his family. They went to the place where the kinsmen of Miriam lived. The men who came did not search long for Yahusha, for after the council had been dismissed, Herod slew the son who sat with them on the throne, as he had slain others of his blood. Later, Herod died himself. But after these happenings, the Romans did not bestow the title of king on any Yehudi, and it was unlawful for any man to claim the title. In this manner, the prophecy was fulfilled which said, A virgin shall give birth to a son, naming him Elohim with us. He will be the bearer of knowledge, discriminating between good and evil. But before this is given to the people, the land will lose its kings. When time had passed, Yosef and Miriam came to Jerusalem and stayed at the house of a relative, a man strongly set against wrongdoing and well learned in the Torah. The forty days having been accomplished for the Purification of Miriam, she came to the temple and Yosef offered the prescribed sacrifice and dedicated child. Just quick note here you can see a complete deviation from the idea that they went to Egypt. I mean, did they go to Egypt and return in 40 days? Um, Or what happened there? Because it looks like he's only 40 days old and he's at the temple. Hearing from Yosef and Miriam the things which the sages had foretold about the child Yahusha, the devout man took the babe into his arms and praised Yahuwah in this manner. Because the things foretold have come about, your servant is prepared to depart in peace. For my eyes have been gladdened by the deliverer of my people, a beacon light for others and the glorifier of your name. He will teach all men the ways of Yahuwah and how to walk in his paths. So swords shall be made into plowshares and spears into billhooks, and shalom will reign over men. Yosef and Miriam could not understand the meaning of this and asked what was meant. Whereupon the man replied, I hold a sapling which will grow into a sturdy tree, under the shade of which many nations will find peace. Yet he will also test the strength of our people, tearing them apart in disputes. He comes as a separator, dividing the sheep from the goats, showing each his rightful place. He will place a sword in the hands of the weak and strengthen them, and the ungodly will be smitten. After complying with the requirements of the priestly law, Joseph and Miriam returned with the infant to their home in Galilee, a small place in a hollow at the foot of a hillside. There the child grew up, developing a strong body and keen mind, for he was strangely talented. He was wise beyond his years and deft with hands, and when old enough, he began learning the craft of plow-making. His parents, following the custom, went each year to Yerushalayim for the festival deliverance, and when Yehusha was twelve, they went as usual, but this time taking with uh, this time, taking him with them. Having remained the seven days of the festival, Yosef and Miriam set off to return home and let the boy linger in Yerushalayim for a kinsman of theirs was also returning. And they thought Yehusha was in his company. Having gone a day's journey and finding Yehusha was not with his kinsmen, they became perturbed and, at first light in the morning, returned to Yerushalayim. It was some time before they found Yehusha in a small outside room of the temple, sitting before an instructor of the priestly law. His parents were astonished at finding him accepted among learned men, and the teacher expressed amazement at the child's love of learning. But Miriam scolded the boy for his inconsideration, saying, "We have suffered much during the search for you." Yahusha replied, why search for me elsewhere, knowing I must concern myself with the work of my father? This saying disturbed the instructor. Neither could his parents understand the meaning of the reply, but they took the boy away with them. Henceforth, he always obeyed his parents, but Miriam kept these things in the storehouse of her heart. As Yehusha grew up, his intelligence increased, and he was well-liked by all, but he was a solitary child, much given to wandering. Chapter two,
1: pausing for a drink.
0: Yosef died when Yehusha was a youth. And that's, of course, connects with other scripture we read. At that time, working as a craftsman among the Canaanites. After Yehusha had been away a long time, he returned to the house of his brothers. I mean, that right there is interesting. So this is saying that he went somewhere. We don't know where he went. Um... The Book of Britain seems to suggest uh, he went to um, a group of followers that were similar to John the Baptist, and he may have gone to Qumran. Um, we don't really know. We don't know if he went to England with Yosef. We don't know if he went to Qumran, but he went somewhere for a long time. One day, while he worked under the shade of a tree, they came to him and said, Out in the wilderness by Yarden, there's a man who cleanses people by immersion in water. He claims strange knowledge and calls himself the forerunner. We are going to see what he teaches. Now, this is why I said before there had to be a mistranslation, because clearly John the Baptist has just come on the scene rather recently. He's kind of well-known now, and they're they're all talking about him. So he hasn't been around since before Yehusha was born preaching, clearly. Yahushua said, I have heard of these things, and surely as the son of our forefather Yeshai prayed to be cleansed of his secret faults and presumptions, the sons of her father should not stand aloof from cleansing. I will go with you. The brothers of Yahushua said, This man is called Yokanan. He heralds the coming of an enlightener who will be an all-wise instructor in goodness. He himself does not bear this new light which will dispel the darkness in men's minds. He tells of one who will grant men the privilege of becoming children of Elohim, awakening to eternal life that part within them not born of earthly desires. <laughs> And little do his brothers know that they're inviting the Messiah out to be anointed. <laughs> uh, you got to love brothers. So Yahusha and his brothers went out seeking Yochanan, finding him beside the Yarden at the place of crossing where there was a pool. The hairs on the head of Yohanan were already white. Yochanan, seeing Yahusha... Um, so does that mean he was really old, but it said already white. So I don't know. Yochanan, seeing Yahusha among those gathered about him, said, Look all of you. Here he is, a man in whom there is no guile, the true Lamb of Elohim, the one we await. For Sethel, sending me forth to baptize, instructed me thus, When you discover a man worthy to be the receptacle of the Ruach HaKodesh in abundance, the same shall you acknowledge as the Enlightener. Hearing these words, Yahusha joined with those to be cleansed. But when he stood before the forerunner in the water, Yokanan said, "You have greater powers of cleansing than I, yet you come to me." Yehusha replied, "The power to cleanse and revitalize with the Ruach is not in men, but in the Ruach which fills men." It is important each should be allowed to do whatever he is called upon to do. Yehusha asked of Yokanan, "What do you know about me?" Yokanan said, "Years gone by, I had a vision of 3 heavenly lights and as the sun sank, so they rose. A flame of fire went up over Yerushalayim, and smoke filled the temple, and a star fell down into Yehuda. The meaning I know for it was this, The deliverer is born, and woe unto the house of Herod. Woe to you, scribes, and your interpre- interpretations of the Torah. The star that appeared and stood over Yerushalayim was a child planted into Bethlehem from out of the heavenly heights. As was foretold, and it was prophesied he would be the deliverer. The fire that burned was the fire of a strange altar. I prophesy great things for you. You are the true son of Elohim. Soon you will see the glory of heaven revealed, and the power of the Ruach HaKodesh will be poured out upon you as a stream of pure water. The time has come to proclaim yourself. Peace. Peace on you, whom our Elohim has chosen as his messenger, for you will proclaim the true gospel. Strengthen your heart, for the road ahead is steep and stony. No man is hated so much as one who tries to point out defects in character and attitudes and seeks to guide men along the path of right and beneficial living. I'll I'll repeat that one more time. No man is hated so much as one who tries to point out defects in character and attitudes. And seeks to guide men along the path of right and beneficial uh, living. So, if you're, if you are a well-loved person, um, then you know you're probably not doing these things. And if I'll say Jesus is well loved by many, then that version of Jesus might not be doing these things. Just FYI. Then canon took Yahushua down to the river and baptized him, and he was overshadowed by the Ruach Hakodesh and became fully filled with its power so his face glowed. And the people wondered and were bewildered, for they did not understand. I love that, the, yet the face of their forefather Moshe had also glowed after he had been in the presence of the Ruach Kakadesh of Yahuwah. I love that reference there, uh, the glowing. Yokanan said, go and wait upon the mountainside nearby. Later, Yokanan went to join Yahusha and told him that he was the anointed one but should not yet make this known to the people. Then you prayed thus. We give thanks, O Yahuwah, with souls purified through realization of our misdeeds and Ruachoth reaching upward to commune with you. It is by your power alone we have seen the light of truth manifested and come to know the secret of your hidden name. In humility we call you by the name of Father because you have shown us a Father's compassion and kindness and because we know you chastise and discipline us after the manner of a father. You have granted us freedom of activity, that we may enjoy the blessings of life. We have been saved by the waters of your affection. We approach you as the only good and great being, asking only that we be, be united with you in the waters of the Ruach and never become separated from the source of life. This is how Yochanan testified among concerning those events. On that day, the Ruach overflowing from Elohim came with a great surge of power. I did not know this man from others, but seeing him, I recalled what I had seen told by those who gave me power to cleanse with water. They had said, when you find someone so filled with the power of the Ruach HaKadosh, he can hardly contain it. You will know him for one who will baptize with the cleansing power of the Ruach HaKadosh. I have experienced this power and testify that this man is the true son of Elohim, the Enlightener and Deliverer. Yokanan left Yahusha on the mountainside, where he stayed three days fasting and communicating with the powers above. Then he went back to the riverside. Yokanan was standing with two of his disciples, Yehusha sitting apart, and Yokanan said to those with him, There is the one giving himself as an offering of Elohim, the Enlightener of the world and the deliverer of our people. Then the two disciples went to Yehusha and said, Tell us about your teachings. Shall we follow your way or that of Yochanan?" Yehusha said, There is the way of the wilderness, and there is my way, alike in teaching, but calling to different men. What Yokanan teaches accords with the Torah, even as my teaching. Obey either or both. They are the Torah. From that day forth, Yehusha had power to heal the sick and to do many things. But he went out into the wilderness bordering Yarden, uncertain about his next move. While there, hungry and thirsty, he fought with the flesh, resisting the temptation to go down among the habitations of men and use his powers for selfish ends. The same Ruach of Yahuwah which overshadowed Yehusha overshadowed the creation. It enlightens outer darkness and bestows life and is eternal. Yochanan was one of those who conceived the Ruach of men. And so he knew the nature of Yahusha. These things took place at Be- uh, Betharaba, which means the place of crossing. All right. I think I'm going to end it there. That's actually a really good cutoff. And uh, I'm hoping you guys maybe took notes or, um, you know, picked up on some stuff and
1: what stuck out to you guys there
0: i mean i'll start i think what one thing that i found fascinating in there is i had talked to you guys uh several weeks back about pre-existence and i mean everybody knows that uh, Yahushua HaMashiach pre-existed. I mean, if you believe that he is the Messiah, right? Even if you're a, a, a Trinitarian or not, he pre-existed. But the, the common idea that is taught to us in Christianity or Catholicism or fill in the blank is that, you know, he could have come out of the womb tap dancing, you know, hello, my baby. And and uh, that he was, uh, you know, he was all knowledgeable, but he had to pretend to learn, right? He had to pretend to fit in with the... But that's not the way this is presented, and uh i think this is pretty legit like it was interesting that the Yochanan, know, the baptizer the immerser he had to tell him hey he's like you're the messiah i am telling you now you're the messiah and like yahusha he's showing up with his brothers and they're they're not suspecting him of anything you know they're not thinking he he's like he's anything special and then all of a sudden it's like boom you know here he is and and then he goes out in the wilderness and he's like what next I don't know what to do. He, there's this outpouring of the Ruach HaKadosh on him. And um, and he's like, man, I, I could use this for evil purposes. I could use this for like to serve myself. What do I do? And he had to go out. So and then we're going to see throughout this book as he just becomes more and more knowledgeable until he's just like blowing the, the lid off everything. Um, so what are you guys thoughts on that?
1: I concur. Also, I wanted to note that when you said, um,
3: was uh, John uh, that old that he had white hair? Moses had white hair when he came back down off the mountain. So obviously, uh, John in the wilderness had a few encounters with uh, the angels of uh, heaven and was tutored by Yahweh in the desert, I'm sure. So um, he probably had that same white hair effect that Moses did. But yes, I really like what you said about predestination and especially his learning. I never looked at, uh, he had to learn that I'm sure he was born with uh, a pretty intense uh, knowledge and that uh, he was
1: probably speaking as I've heard uh, right away, uh, even from the womb.
0: Yeah, I, well, yeah, I mean, what I'm reading here is that, um, by the end of this book, I mean, uh, is very clearly like, look, guys, I'm the Messiah. Like, I am the son of Elohim, and, you know, nothing that I, you know, he could say boldly claims, like, nothing that I say or do that I did not learn from the presence of the Most High, right? But What I'm reading here in the early parts is that he had to learn even this foreknowledge. Like, like i'm i don't know i mean what i'm reading here is that like when he was baptized um he may have not had those memories he didn't know that he was i don't know like something that just came with him in time but that's what i'm reading and the but the the, the white hair comment is is i think spot on uh that it's it said that it said that oh it looks like john you really want to say something jump in there
2: I was just gonna say I was having a conversation yesterday with my friend and we were talking about some controversial topics and you know when you're saying that you know this this comment you made about he could come out and be tap dancing when he come out that would totally go against the laws of nature and when I say the laws of nature I mean of course the laws of our father and uh he said well you know God can do anything he wants to and I'm like no he can't that's what we've been taught He can't break his own laws, you know, there are quite a few things if you do an in-depth study that the father cannot do, you know, and and I think that's one of them, he's going to follow his own laws of nature, and I believe that, you know, that the Messiah, when he was born, he was born a normal child, and you're correct, I think he did have to learn all these things up until a certain point, and then that knowledge began to come to him of who he truly was, because of course his parents would have known for sure. So I think they would also taught him that as he's growing older.
1: Yeah, that was that was uh, exactly what I was going to say. That he, I like how this book is showing that he's he's um just kind of growing up. Like we see him actually starting from from a uh, child and learning the ways of the Most High, and he's like coming into his ministry in that sense. What I'm wondering is, um, is uh, maybe perhaps John uh,
3: was more likely to have talked early. Uh, what was the age, Noah that it said he started his ministry? It, he he might have been like nine months old. How do we know? How do we right. know? Because uh, what if he was born, something like Noah, you know, he's got the white hair. And um, he was talking early. I mean, in the animal kingdom, a a horse, a colt will come from its mother's womb, and it, it can it takes first stumbling steps. I mean, a human baby would not do that, but not usually. But who's to say it, it cannot happen? Um. So uh, who's who's to know? But you know, Messiah. Had to learn. He had to be like us in all manner, and we struggle. I don't know about you all, but I certainly struggle. What do I do next? I mean, I'm I'm currently in that mode right now. What do I do next? But um, John, being a one who is foreshadowing, a forerunner, maybe perhaps he was he was more like uh,
1: Noah, since he did have a special office. Uh, to accomplish that's just something i was thinking of just gonna
0: point out once more on his white hair since that's the uh, topic of the um, of the hour um, it, it it mentioned that it it had already grown white right like that's it seems to be saying like it went white ahead of his time when i think of Going white ahead of your time like you know i guess a worldly example would be like steve martin you look back in the 70s and did that guy like i think he went like straight into puberty with white hair uh (laughs) because like his earliest roles he had white hair uh so it's almost like saying like yeah like other men of his age didn't have white hair yet but he did and I, i really like the the comparison to moshe um also when it it talks about yahusha like glowing that that uh you can and could see it um i've i've never i've never had the uh i've never had the experience of seeing somebody glow you know uh this actually i think says um that it's uh what is it does it say purple yeah it's purple we will see later in the book that it's growing purple which is really fascinating um th- though no it's blue it's blue it's like the color of it's like a purplish blue whatever like the color of heaven like the color of the firmament um that a person that's filled the more filled you are with the huaqa you actually have this glow around you and which is actually what they say about the shroud of turin i'll be presenting that next week and there's a the connection there with how they said that the image was like this like radioactive blue purple color um but I'm sure many of you have maybe had the experience of you're around somebody, like maybe just a stranger on the street, and you just feel the the presence of the Ruach HaKadosh in them. Like, it's really strong. I don't know if you guys can can identify with that. I, I know that many times in my life I'll just pass someone by, and there's like this joy within me, this other person. And there's like this connection. I'm like, man, this guy, this person right here, this is, this person's filled with the Spirit. And many times I'll ask for, you know, prayer for affirmation and all of a sudden like that person will start singing praises or something like yep that guy's filled with the spirit and uh so that's you know i like that what what you can saw here in Yehusha is like man this guy is filled with the spirit anybody have any lost last thought lost thoughts anybody have any last thoughts before we officially close this tonight
4: well i just wanted to say how much i really enjoyed the whole presentation and um it it, it you're painting a whole picture. I mean, it to me, it it goes, um, it, it it all fits. I I, I don't have any, pro- in fact, you know, uh, several things became more clear to me tonight, um, and it's interesting because I've been having some of these type conversations about you know what marriage really means and and. Uh, it it just answered a lot of questions especially i i loved the part about um and i i wish we could look over this a little more uh where where it talks about where he said that uh, some marriages in front of priests are um what did you call it
1: oh
0: fornication
4: uh, a, yeah fornication i i i thought that was fascinating um i'd really like to explore that topic a little more
0: yeah, well, I'll just throw this out there now, and I didn't have time to add this to the presentation, um, but I would have liked to. It would have just been a whole, you know, it was a two-hour presentation. It would have gone even further out there. Uh, but what here's what I think the union of Ru'a Koth is, okay? It's, um, now, don't people start, like, you know, throwing eggs at me because they're really expensive uh, when I say this but it's what i would call spiritual androgyny okay now androgyny is uh, we see this happening today with the lgbtq culture and the you know w- w- all the different names for what people are becoming you know the what they identify as biologically versus whatever they are and men becoming women and women becoming men and other things and that's actually uh, that's actually a Uh, of an abomination okay that that is clearly against the torah uh you are a man or a woman that is not what i'm saying um and that is that is perverse on so many levels all right but there's there's something i don't know what else to call it like there's a so when a man and a woman are united a a union of ruakath eternally it is a type of um, it's not saying that the man and woman, like a woman enters, like becomes the man and she ceases to exist or she's a man eternally. It's like, no, no, no. like there's going to be something that is a mystery to us that in eternity that they are forever. They are two separate beings. The man and the woman—they are two separate conscious entities, but they have this ikad. They are—they are united together. It's—it's it's kind of like the confusion that uh, many people have with the Trinity. You know, the ikad that the Father and the Son have together, and the Holy Spirit has, and you know, Yehoshua prays that we would have that same ikad with the Father as He has—that same union, uh, connection. There's going to be the, the, that type of vikata between the, the, the man and the woman, and they will be together, like stitched together. And it's something that I think that we can't uh, really understand in this in this day and age on this side of the, the curtain, though it's something that physical androgyny is mimicking and, you know, from a very, very um, perverse perspective, of what we see happening in the world right now where people are switching sexes and all that kind of stuff. So um that is uh there's another passage from the Gospel of Philip that it actually talks about Adam and Eve and says that uh that if if Chua were to become uh unified with Adam again, it says that death would forever cease to exist. And so that's really interesting. And so th- that seems to be the idea of the kingdom of heaven when it is fully manifested that there would death will cease to exist and the man, the woman will um you know, the red partner will return to the man again.
2: I'd just like to make another comment as far as uh, what, what I consider this in depth way out there in the left field teaching and understanding that we're going through. I think it, it, it's perfect because the farther that it moves us away from mainstream theology and the teaching, of the church and all that, it takes us out of the worldly view of theology and christianity which is perfect i mean you know because we're told to come out of her my children so if you still have this worldly view of christianity and the bible and all that you know the mainstream theology you can't be in the right you you can't be going down the right path because you know scripture clearly says the the gateway is small and very few who are going to enter so that, I love it. I, I mean, the more that we move away from that mainstream theology, I honestly feel the closer we are getting to our Heavenly Father.
0: Yeah, I know that this is one of the things that has really excited me, because when I read the book of the Nazarene, and we'll get into it, we're just over, you guys already saw it, because I quoted from like the, the woman at the well and other things, where they talk about the the, the union of the ruoka. And this is some deep stuff, guys. I mean, it's like Yahusha's straight out saying this, that a lot of marriages are just fornication. And it's like, what? And, but it's, it's the same thing that um, that Paul was saying with circumcision, that a lot of circumcised people are uncircumcised, and the Jews are like, what? How could you say that? We're circumcised. How, you want to check? How can you say we're uncircumcised? He's like, you're not spiritually circumcised. I'm sorry. And it's the same thing. just like, yeah, I know you, you went in front of a priest, but that's all fornication. You're not married. And, um, and so you know, that's the question. How are we... How do we become, you know, spiritually united, right? That that should be the goal, right? We, we move past the the physicality of it, the, the lust, the carnal lust and that kind of stuff. And we're, you know, we're truly united together as a man and a woman. And um, it's, um that, I mean, that's some deep stuff, but it's also just so exciting. And it, as I mentioned, Sarah and I have been really excited about this going, because there was always really sad, you know, like, like we're going to die and, you know, that's it. Like we're just gonna kind of remember that we were married at one time, but we're not we're just gonna be like normal pe it's like no, it's like like we you can truly um, and this also explains the, the 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 whole thing i think it it brought into light the the woman that uh has uh you know she her husband dies and she has no child through uh, no heir through that child uh through their husband, and so she goes and marries the brother and Remember, it says in the Torah that if the brother refuses to lay with her and to produce a child for his brother, that she can go, like, spit in his face and that kind of stuff in front of the elders and how dare you and this kind of – and she, she's not wanting to have a child with her brother because she is necessarily attracted to her his brother or because, um, you know, fill in the blank. It's because her Ruikoth is bound to the the, the brother. The, I mean, the, the original husband. That is who she is bound to. And so you are actually creating a child for that brother. And um, again, you could say, well, what about ge- genetically it's different right it's not really truly her uh husband's original ch- husband's child well that may be but when you get into the whole pre-existence argument and where souls come from and this kind of stuff it's like yeah it's still a soul coming from heaven from above and it's in the name of the the uh the husband the original husband and this is where you get, get into genealogies where you can see people accredited to being the father or the mother and they weren't really but they were the spiritual father or the mother so, I mean, it seems to me like all of this is really coming together and I, I find it really exciting to think about.